MCVC 1195. Oh. 1195. Missed that by so much. Oh, um, we've got a ruler. We've got a ruler which measures one yard. Or. Or. I'm Andrew. Hello, I'm Nisa. Welcome to episode 37 of... Round the Archives. I thought I'd make you laugh. <laughs> right, it's going to be a biggie. Yes. So we won't faff about. No. So Nothing to correct. No, no. let's just get on with it. Okay. Links will be very short. Yes. So, we welcome back Martin Holmes, who yes. looks at... The Thick of It. First appearing in a very brief three-part series on BBC4 in 2005, The Thick of It was very much the bastard child of a Yes Minister, given that it was conceived when creator Armando Iannucci championed that series for a completely different series about the greatest sitcoms ever, and thought it might be ripe for an update of some kind in the horrid, torrid and thoroughly sweary era of spin and press manipulation in the more modern British political era of the early 2000s. Yes, Minister, and yes, Prime Minister, are, of course, more than a little bit utterly brilliant. So this was no small task, but with a tiny budget and initially a very small cast, and based upon a short sketch, a little piece of satirical treasure, a sweary adult and very sophisticated legend, of course, but there you go, was sneaked out onto what was very much a minority channel in those days, and a comedy legend was born, albeit one you might not want to watch with your parents in the room with you. The show's creator, Armando Iannucci, purely coincidentally, has a background of Scottish-Italian roots which is similar to that of series star Peter Cavaldi. But that's all it is, really. So we're not going to let any Scottish political mafia conspiracy theories sneak into this particular piece. Oh, no. Well, not unless we're told by the RTA editorial Rottweiler that we are definitely going to sneak that Scottish political mafia theory out into the world because it's in the public interest. Anyway, it's not standing behind me, is it? Anyway, after steadily working his way up through the ranks of BBC production, Armando Iannucci worked on Radio 4's On The Hour, the series that ultimately became television's The Day To Day, a seminal series which ultimately begat several incarnations of Alan Partridge and gave a career boost to a whole host of comedy stars over the next decade. Armando Iannucci also began performing in series like The Friday Night Armistice and even had an eponymous sketch show broadcast by Channel 4, the impact of which seems to have been lost in the maelstrom following 9-11. Although I do remember seeing it at the time and the care home for middle-aged men sketch remains a terrifyingly hilarious high point for me, at least, and I've pointed people in its direction time and again ever since. Go on, watch it, it's funny. It's also not funny at all, from a particular point of view, actually, being a middle-aged man, of course. Meanwhile, 
the thick of it was brewing up nicely. The first episode is fairly typical in that at first appearances in terms of an actual plot nothing very much seems to happen. One minister of the crown is manipulated into resigning, another is duly put in place, a mistake is made and there's a scramble to put it right or at least less wrong and, and that's about it. Okay, in the real world of politics and headlines that's probably quite a lot and would lead to screaming banner headlines and endless news interviews for days and days and days despite it being basically a few shady people chatting in dingy offices in Whitehall, which is, of course, the genius of it. Because episode one is also a spectacularly clever and complex 29 minutes that tells that simple story as it unfolds in a hilarious and squirm-inducing fashion, and the programme makes quite an astonishing impact right from the outset. Much like the fictional Department of Administrative Affairs in its inspiration, DOSAC, the Department of Social Affairs and Citizenship, in which the series is set, does not exist, but sounds as if it either might or ought to. That the first minister we are introduced to is David Archer from The Archers, even if you might not have recognised him, is just the icing on the souffle, of course, and Timothy Bentick plays the departing minister, Cliff Lawton, in the first seven minutes or so of the episode, with a kind of befuddled, muted rage that we will very quickly understand to be totally the norm in these corridors of the powerless. Despite, it is rumoured, being on the brink of giving up acting when he got the part... Peter Capaldi makes an immediate impression in the role, destined to become most associated with the thick of it, as spinmeister-in-chief Malcolm Tucker in these scenes, scenes which are presumably only there to serve as an instant introduction to his character, as he is not exactly a huge feature of the rest of the episode, despite being a terrifying, looming presence right from the off. The entire series is filmed very much in a cinema verite style, and, we are told, largely improvised around the scripts, or vice versa, and yet the panic that the mere mention of Malcolm being in the building induces in the characters is palpable, and you you even begin to worry yourself about whether he's sneaking up on you as a whole host of indecisions suddenly come into play, like whether fruit is the better thing to be seen eating instead of the pastries they actually want, and the simple word coffee becomes a panicky mantra to all and sundry. And words are very, very important in the thick of it, as we are about to discover in the exchange between Malcolm and the soon-to-be ex-minister. After all, when you are employing writers to specifically write the most horrific-sounding X-rated insults possible, you know that something approaching genius is going on behind the scenes. We're not on cosy old BBC One anymore, people. The sitcom boundaries are shattering around us as we watch. Peter Capaldi is, of course, instantly magnificent, with the easy-going veneer of charm already barely hiding the threateningly deadly cobra within. You're immediately terrified of Malcolm, and it's really hard quite to know why, despite the panic which ensued in the office simply because his name has been mentioned. It's an important opening scene, this, because despite the fact that Tim Bentig is booted out the door fairly rapidly, he will return, although there must have been moments when somebody wished they'd reverse their casting, because it establishes Malcolm, and let's be honest, in the thick of it, it's Malcolm that really matters. It's peculiar going back to watching Peter Capaldi playing Malcolm Tucker, having seen him spending several years being utterly wonderful, vulnerable and breathtakingly good as Doctor Who, of course, because he's immediately so bloody terrifying, charming and affable, and yet, in the best Macbethian tradition, the smile does hide a villain, and his words however ordinary they might at first appear to be, hide a real underlying menace. From the moment we find Joanna Scanlon's director of communications, Terry Coverley, a strangely motherly yet ruthlessly ambitious character, carrying the minister's cases, we can sense Cliff is in real trouble. And whilst shiny new phrases like useless as a marzipan dildo and bum chutney are instantly and effortlessly added to the Oxford English Dictionary, an awkward political scandal is signposted merely by means of the headline spotted on a passing newspaper. Already, Cliff's ministerial career is being talked of in the past tense very 
very tense, and whilst harmless phrases like the PM likes you personally are bandied about with new, terrible, deeper meanings, the trap is sprung. Malcolm's simple follow-up phrase, the thing is, seals his fate, and because Cliff appears weak, he simply got to go. The lobby have already been told, the resignation letter has already been written, and whilst Cliff shows his true mettle by trying to get Tom at transport fired instead, the furious and surprisingly youthful-looking Malcolm Tucker persuades him to go citing personal reasons, and whilst the whole jumped-or-pushed debate rambles on, Cliff is persuaded to ring the PM, and we reach the simple white-on-black title caption. There is, thankfully, no jaunty theme tune to remind us that this is a comedy, and the episode proper can begin. Cliff Lawton's photograph on the office wall now has a companion next to it, which is of his replacement, the Right Honourable Hugh Abbott MP, who we meet a few weeks later, it would seem, as he appears to have been in the post for a while, as he arrives at work, riding on the crest of a wave of vagueness and bewilderment. At this point, we are also introduced to his political advisers, the youthful Ollie Reader and the older but no more wise Glenn Cullen, played by Chris Addison and James Smith. Just for a moment, Hugh tries to act like a competent Minister of the Crown because he feels as if his political star is in the ascendant, and he shows a certain amount of smuggittery as his latest idea, one which Ollie currently refers to as the Snooper Squad, is liked by the PM. There then follows one of those scenes of almost cringe-inducing embarrassment as these buffoons try very hard to be a group of jocks when we all know that they were exactly the kind of dweebs that were having their heads flushed down the toilets of whatever public schools you can be sure they once suffered in. Now they are in positions of relative power, they begin to act in a way that they think powerful people ought to act in, and it is spectacularly embarrassing in a way that the sitcom The Office made acceptable. This, we all believe, is how the real people inhabiting the real corridors of power actually behave, or, at the very least, have convinced themselves that it is acceptable to behave, mindless, blokey banter of the most ghastly, sexist and misogynistic sort, which, in the hands of the thick of it, is hilarious, in the real world, far less so. Because the PM signalled that they should introduce the scheme, Hugh is mind-snappingly chuffed about it, and between them they decide to, oh lord, double-bubble it, by giving the story to Angela Heaney at The Standard, as played by Lucinda Rakes, who is very understandably an ex-girlfriend of Ollie's, although what she ever saw in him we are left to wonder, especially when massively un-PC observations like she's easy are bandied about in the sort of private conversations you know those who end up publishing apologising are always having. Trying, for whatever reason, to be part of this stupid boys club, Terry also tries joining in banter, which is somehow far worse, and whilst they do start to guiltily nod towards the ethical stuff even as Ollie persists with the patronising put-downs, Hugh lets slip that he thinks that his personal driver despises him. Moments later, Hugh and Glenn are in the back of the ministerial car on their way to a school to make the announcement and listening to The World at One, Watto to its chums, and the much-missed voice of Nick Clark. Hugh is still chuffed, even when the fatalities in a train disaster in Bangalore are announced, he manages to make an ill-timed comment, presumably increasing the disdain of his driver, and is positively gleeful at the prospect of putting one over on the boys in the treasury. Then Malcolm rings, and Malcolm is upset, by which we always mean furious, at what Hugh is planning to announce, and threatens a hurricane of piss which is nice, and they end up discussing the syntax of this being exactly the sort of thing that the government should be doing, as opposed to actually doing it. Hugh, on his way to make a speech announcing the scheme, is told in no uncertain terms to kill it. 
and when Malcolm Tucker says kill it, you know exactly what he means. There is a moment of terror inside the car as Hugh realises the magnitude of his gaffe and how he was sucked in by that little word should because Hugh knows, he just knows that Malcolm is always right. Should didn't mean yes. Meanwhile, Ollie is having lunch with his journalist ex and leaking the very story they now want quashed. Outside Perivale Station, Ace McShane fans take note, the car stops to pick up both Ollie and his doggy bag of olives and there's another scene of hilarious panic in the back of the car as they try to place the blame beyond themselves and provide a viable explanation in their usual already too familiar inept manner and the eyes of the driver seen in the rearview mirror notices all the myth of a leak by a disgruntled civil servant is hatched though they detect a tone in terry's voice as they contact her via phone as ollie backtracks furiously to his journalist friend whilst getting ever more carsick next we cut him admitting to wanting to have a moment of playing the big man as he whines and wheedles at her via a mobile phone in a lay-by although they generally seem to come to the conclusion that they can blame the much unloved terry another rather brilliant scene follows when it dawns upon these three hapless cretins that they've invited the entire press pack out to a school in wiltshire and now have nothing to tell them in one of those truly genius scenes of panic and deep insight we witness glynn's cynical side as they brainless storm the always popular topic of capital punishment the national spare room database would that that idea remained in the realms of comedy and suddenly zoos because everybody likes zoos the minister's weary that shit isn't it speaks volumes and once again this is quietly observed unremarked upon in the mirror by the greek chorus that is hugh's driver a nice touch is hugh using an electric razor in the car as they go along which tells us much about having to appear on camera and what people perceive when people do in the media age the less than ingenious solution is to present to the press hounds the notion of an ordinary day at the office for dosak showing them a little bit of the everyday coalface politics which they never report and their smug gittery at coming up with this that they had tricked them for mugs into coming all the way out to wiltshire by waving a shiny bit of tinsel at them gives them a moment of misplaced joy their chatter continues when they arrive at the school and amidst talk of springy concrete and whether references to real families and real people sounds too communist or not including a brief reminder that fathers are people too hugh heads through the double doors to give his speech jump cut he leaves muttering well that was a disaster and the silence in the car as they head back to the office is in stark and hilarious contrast to the confidence of the journey out happily back at dosak they discover that there is no mention at all of the speech in the evening standard and hugh gets a compliment of sorts a kind of inverse attaboy and a half-hearted well done that he got away with it by giving a press conference so boring that nobody could find anything to write about it and whilst glenn and hugh are feeling less than quietly pleased with themselves and their friendship is delineated with the phrase i took the flak and you supplied the flak jacket and as they are enjoying a boisterous post-mortem malcolm tucker arrives wanting a word dear lord even i'm terrified and remember this is episode one and we barely know the man yet now you begin to appreciate the power and reasoning behind that opening scene malcolm in these particular circles it's god malcolm's word is law malcolm is the devil incarnate malcolm is well malcolm and whilst he's casually riffing on billy joel's we didn't start the fire we discover that the pm is on a plane in stockholm thinking that the treasury are trying to stiff him one and as a diversion decided to stick with hugh's story and in the in a battle of the shoulds don't should me that hugh swiftly loses when he unwisely believes he momentarily has the upper hand the pm is suddenly backing what is currently being referred to as hugh's snooper force and despite that slight moment of triumph he now has to completely reverse his position and it turns out the announcement hugh didn't make he actually did ah 
politics, eh? It's rather like one of those psychological experiments in that an entire room full of people are so very persuasive about an obvious falsehood that you begin to doubt yourself and you start agreeing with them. Malcolm tries to get inside uh, Hugh's head, telling him uh, just to say that he said it, and with a little fable about someone he knows who had a dalliance but was able to switch a switch in his head and return to his other life, Hugh is convinced into dark psychopathic arts. Where are my people? Bleats Hugh to an almost empty office. His people have gone home at the end of their working days, so he's left to explain that things have changed and that he did announce what he didn't announce to Terry, Glenn, and Dolly, uh, to which the obvious and unavoidable response in the world of the thick of it is, with... And, of course, Hugh has to turn to Malcolm for help, which involves them all getting on the phones. Ollie's journalist friend Angela is back, having had a pretty awful day at the office herself, again with startlingly sharp insight into the cruel and misogynistic world of journalism, surely worth an entire series of its own. Someone actually went out and bought her a pair of flip-flops, which are a somewhat unfortunately named type of British footwear, which were presented to her with a porn picture stuck to them, and the message, Angela Heaney swallows anything. She is, quite understandably furious, why not, she asks Ollie, not tell the story he's now feeding her, but instead tell the story of this day of spin which he has unique insight into. As Ollie flusters, Malcolm steps in telling her what a good idea he thinks that is and makes a swift exit. Only. Then he comes back. Only. He knows exactly why she shouldn't do that because, as he so affably puts it, she'd be dead. Professionally, we think professionally we hope and as malcolm explains in explicit detail about how dead this poor woman is going to be professionally we almost believe we do genuinely believe that he's capable of doing this and malcolm in full flow is a truly magnificently terrifying sight at least ollie has the apparent decency to do some squirming even if being ollie it's particularly self-serving squirming and so we find the minister on the radio live on air talking about what is now being called the sponge avengers in a way that's obviously never going to come back and bite him in the backside at all and outside waiting in the ministerial car Hugh's driver listens to radio hearing everything and not rolling a single eyeball and as the episode ends with silent captions interspersing with the final scene Hugh Abbott Ollie and Glenn are in the stairwell finally ending yet another rubbish day at the ministry Ollie has promised a lifestyle piece on Hugh's home life to Angela which already has him moaning and as they reflect upon what is already becoming known as flip flop Friday Hugh whispers that he really really needs Glenn to get him a new driver, and yet, as he accuses the driver of the heinous crime of smiling and smirking inappropriately, he gets into the car, capitulating with the cheery, false bonhomie of You're the Boss, as the episode ends. The utter twi- <laughs> Sometimes, when reflecting upon the thick of it, I do forget just how good it is, actually. As I mentioned at the start, nothing much happens, but an awful lot happens, and the way the jigsaw is put together is breathtaking to watch, and even those foul-mouthed flights of fancy do have the touch of genius about them, you have to admit. And with all comedy based upon other people being fundamentally embarrassing, those 29 minutes have flown by, and yet somehow you're desperate for the ordeal to be over, and the gaffes just to stop, but equally you'd quite like for it to go on and on and on. There is, of course, a huge elephant in the room when discussing the early episodes of The Thick of It, namely Chris Langham, playing incoming minister with a comfortably numb Pink Floydian laid-back incompetence and bubbling undercurrent of abject fear, using the inept persona that also served him so well in the almost-unlikely-to-be-seen-ever-again spoof documentary series People Like Us. This thank-your-lucky-stars Griff Reese jones not-quite-the-not-the-nine-o'clock-news fourth player has had a troubled decade since his appearances in The Thick of It, and his sudden necessary departure, which is beyond our remit here, but cannot be ignored 
However, I might want to suggest to you at this point that it is sometimes possible to separate the artist from the art. Does a great painting diminish in greatness because of who painted it? Does a fabulous song become less fabulous because of who performed it? Does a wonderful movie become less wonderful because of somebody being in it? Does a sitcom become less funny because of one of the actors playing in it? To some viewers or listeners, the answer is quite obviously a firm yes, and that's fine, I can respect that, despite the fact that I sometimes find myself idly humming certain tunes that can never be played on the radio ever again. But the early series of The Thick of It do deserve reseeing because despite all of that, they do have a whiff of greatness about them. Obviously, there are going to be associations and certain television shows are unlikely ever to see the light of day again because of what somebody involved with the programme turned out to have done. And that's absolutely quite right too. After all, nobody wants to be randomly reminded of a heinous act simply because they switch on their television. But the issue remains extraordinarily complicated and probably far more complicated than I can go into here. And God help us if anyone closely associated with a much-loved television favourite that is constantly being rerun turns out to have been a wrong gun. I choose to rewatch the early series of The Thick of It, not because I condone the actions of all of its star players, but because it's interesting to watch, and actually a bloody good half an hour of television that doesn't get seen half as much as it might once have done, for, well, pretty obvious reasons, I suppose. The Thick of It would get far sharper later on, and would lead to the spin-off feature film In the Loop, and ultimately the American hit comedy Veep. Meanwhile, out of necessity, its own focus would shift due to the unavailability of that one rather significant central character and as it became more successful and acquired a more significant budget the cast of characters grew and grew and introduced such fine actors as the sublime Roger Allen and the delightfully sharp Rebecca Front to orbit around the machinations of Malcolm Tucker throughout the subsequent seven years or so. Meanwhile the perpetual survivors that are the characters of Glenn and Ollie, one of life's more odious double acts as well as Terry, will squirm and toady their way into complete and fully rounded figures with lives and backgrounds and genuine concerns and worries. Occasionally you might feel some sympathy for any or all of them, but then they do something so crass and selfish and you find yourself loathing them all over again, which is magnificent. Thank you to Martin for another lovely article. Next up, it's Paul Chandler looking at... Well, let's see, shall we? One of his favourite series, I think. He used to give me roses I wish he could again But that was on the outside And things were different then On the inside the sun still shines And the rain falls down But the sun and rain are Christmas Hello listeners, it's me, Paul the Shayetti, from the Shylife Podcast, here on Round the Archives to do, do... Well, you know, I usually have Nick here with me, but not today. It's just me. Um, I'm going to be talking about a show that's up there as one of my very, very favourite shows. I hesitate to call it a soap opera. I know it gets called a soap opera, and in many ways it has soap opera elements, But for me, probably if you're going to call this show a soap opera, then you should also call Doctor Who a soap opera, because these days there's probably as much soapy element in Doctor Who as there is in the show I'm going to be discussing. What show is that, Paul? Tell us! Well, um, I've probably given it away because you'll have heard the theme music. I'm going to be talking about Prisoner, or as we call it over here, Prisoner Cell Block H. Why don't you ask that new social worker to arrange it? Because Mr Reed used to do that for us. And what K reckon? 
once, I might as well wrangle a holiday on surface paradise. <laughs> now, I do have facts and figures for you, uh, and I'll come to those in a bit. But I think I should probably tell you how I first came to discover the show. Now, it's one of those cases, uh, and it's happened to me before, not just with TV shows, but also with bands I like, with musical groups, where you hear from people, oh, that band's awful, or well, that singer's no good at all. So if you respect the person who's speaking, you perhaps you don't bother. You don't bother to check out that band until one day you speak to someone who says, oh, no, that band's amazing. And they play you a song and you think, wow, this is like the best band ever. Well, a similar sort of thing happened to me with Prisoner Cell Block H. For years, I had been guilty of believing that Prisoner was a load of old rubbish. I heard about bad acting and wobbly sets, which, of course, had I thought about it, um, there's plenty of bad acting and wobbly sets on Doctor Who, and I was already a big fan of that. Why don't we do like I suggested? Be sure to change the way she sees things. I think I'd probably got into Prisoner before I got into Dark Shadows. And, and in Dark Shadows' case, by the time that I got into Dark Shadows, wobbly acting and wobbly sets was a major plus point for me. But the honest truth of Prisoner is that the acting is no better or worse than the acting on Coronation Street from that time, or or most TV shows. There are very few wobbly sets, so if you're tuning in to watch Prisoner for bad acting and wobbly sets, then, well, if you're a fan of most TV of the 70s and 80s, I wouldn't be throwing any stones. Some of my very favourite actors come from Prisoner. But anyway, I was going to tell you about how I first discovered the show. Um, I literally... You know, I never sat down to even watch an episode, but I think I was flicking over the channels. It would have been quite late, and this was when I was still at school, and I lived in the TVS region in Salisbury. And Prisoner Subluck H was always one of those shows that was... If you went to a different ITV region, it would be showing a completely different era of the show. And in fact, by the early 90s, that was a thrill for me because a bit like when I first got into Doctor Who where it was hard to get hold of the stories the same was true of Prisoner it wasn't on video or DVD as it is today it wasn't very accessible if I had friends who lived in different TV regions I, I would often say can you do me a tape of some Prisoner or if I'd be visiting them I'd say do you mind if I stay up late and just watch Prisoner before I go to bed and um, some people don't like spoilers to me, to be able to see episodes of Prisoner that were a few years ahead, or, you know, a few months ahead, or different characters, that was amazing. But I'm jumping ahead of myself. So for me, I was flicking the channels, and I landed on ITV, TVS, whatever you want to call it, and there was a siege going on. There was police, there, were, there was somebody being held hostage. I literally did not know what I was watching, but it was extremely exciting. And so I watched... And then there was a massive cliffhanger, and then suddenly the prisoner theme. I'm going to need you in a minute. What for? You're going to start a punch-up. Something to get the screws occupied. What are you going to be doing? Don't ask questions. I'm entitled You're to... entitled to nothing. But you won't like what you get if you don't do as I tell you. Okay. Only ask him. You'll give me the nod. Yeah. Just keep your eyes open. There was a point when Prisoner got very popular over here. The theme tune got released as a single and sort of, it didn't top the charts, but it was in the top ten. And ironically, by the time Prisoner became really big over here, I think it had finished in Australia. Probably these days, the popularity of the show would probably have kept them making it. I mean, Neighbours 
is still made 35 years after it first appeared and it's pretty much made because there is an audience in the UK much more than there is in Australia so by the time Prisoner was big over here it had quite recently finished in Australia so I was watching this episode with the siege and it ended with the prisoner music and then suddenly it clicked oh my goodness that was really good I really enjoyed that but that's Prisoner Third Block H that's the program that people have told me is rubbish and that is like the most exciting thing I've seen on television ever probably and so I kept watching a lot of the famous characters like B Smith and Lizzie Birdsworth and Doreen and Jude um, I, I may return to some of these characters but it is going to be difficult <laughs> it is going to be difficult to cover the series in any uh, great detail as it ran for so many episodes but uh, I think it's probably best if I just I'm just very enthusiastic about the whole show so where was I? Yes, so I started watching at a point where a character called Vinegar Tits who was um, well, in the early episodes Vinegar Tits was the kind of typical bad um, warder there were a number of bad warders in Prisoner Turbo Cage the most famous of them was uh, Joan the Freak Ferguson uh, Vinegar Tits was never in her league but um she was a lady who had lived with her mother um into middle age and had never really sort of had boyfriends and was kind of resentful and took that out on the uh, on the prisoners the freak she was a bit more hardcore although in the run of the show you you did see a soft side to her that was the good thing about prisoner um there were goodies there were baddies and sometimes you found yourself siding with uh, with the baddies there would be times when joan the freak when there were people who were even worse than her and you wanted her to win very much an anti-hero along the same lines as someone like barnabas collins in dark shadows although the freak didn't tend to suck blood quite as often at least not in the episodes i saw so yes so i kept watching prisoner i later found out that i was watching the sort of exit plot line of vera bennett otherwise known as vinegar tits and um, i kept watching so around the time that I started watching, there were all sorts of twists and one of those inmates turned out to be not half the person that you thought she was. And of course, this is one of the things that I love about Prisoner. I absolutely, absolutely adore a cliffhanger, which is why I love Doctor Who, which is why I love Dark Shadows, which is why I, I do love soap operas, particularly Australian ones. Sons and Daughters. Oh, there are so many Australian soaps that... Uh, that I love, particularly 70s and 80s ones. Um, and I'm sure I will, at some stage, do a, an article on Sons and Daughters because, along with Prisoner, that, that's another of my all-time favourite shows. I've always tried to do what's best for everybody. You really believe that, don't you? I thought you were a conniving bitch. But you're even worse. You're a bit round the twist. There's nothing quite like an Australian soap, even though I'm saying that Prisoner isn't quite the soap in your uh, in your neighbours or home and away sort of template. Aussie soaps are sort of they're quite different. They're they're often quite middle class in a way that UK soaps are usually more working class, and American soaps often seem to be upper class. Uh, I mean, Sons and Daughters has a, a more well-off family, but then a more working class family, and it's the sort of the story of those sort of two lifestyles clashing. But uh, I won't talk about Sons and Daughters this time. Um, anyway, going back to my history with Prisoner, so I followed the show for many years, and 
When I first went to university in 92, Central TV had already finished screening the show. And in fact, it was Central that I think was probably where a lot of the main fandom of Prisoner came from in the UK. Um, Central sort of got to the stage where I think they were showing it every night. And when I got to university up there, they were actually starting to show it again for a second time. Now, I think they only did that for about six months. I had very poor TV reception when I first went to Birmingham. But, I mean, that was another thrill, because I'd never seen these really early episodes. And, of course, you know, we were still a a number of years away from the series coming out, firstly on video, but only a smattering of episodes, and then later on DVD. The only problem that we had in the TVS region was that about a year from the show finishing, Prisoner stopped being shown on ITV and started being shown on Channel 5 right from the beginning, which... (laughs) Had I even had Channel 5, that would have been annoying to suddenly go back to the start just as you're nearing the end. But the other problem was certain areas of Salisbury didn't have Channel 5 and Camberley, where I was living, well, I had no reception anyway. So that was all rather frustrating. Of course, in the end, my good friend Nick, Nick Goodman, who I usually do my articles with, he saved the day and recorded the last year or so for me because he was just in an area where Channel 5 was available to him. I don't know about neighbours becoming good friends, but uh, my friend certainly saved my bacon when it came to uh, recording um, TV shows that I couldn't otherwise access. With Lisa and Andy recording Dark Shadows for me and Nick Nick saving the day with Prisoner. But uh, of course, eventually the whole series came out on DVD and I was finally able to watch the show from beginning to end. Which reminds me of a very happy afternoon (laughs) when I was watching some of those tapes that Nick recorded for me. And I think I decided that I was going to watch so the last four or five episodes in one long sitting. And I think I felt that, you know, by this point, oh gosh, we're probably talking, I've been watching, it was probably the late 90s or something, maybe, maybe even later than that. Um, because by the time that Channel 5 had got back to the end of the show, yes, I, I imagine it, it could well have been in the noughties. But anyway, so I sat down to watch those last episodes and um, I think I thought, well, I ought to see the show off with, with a tipple of some sort. And I think all I had was some brandy, perhaps from Christmas. So I decided, brandy coffee it is then. And, um, well, all I can say is that by the time I got to that final episode, as the freak got her comeuppance, spoilers, uh, as the freak got her comeuppance, I was shouting at the screen, um, relishing every last minute of it. So lots of happy memories from watching the show. Probably want some facts and figures. So, Prisoner, otherwise known as Prisoner Cell Block H in the UK, or Caged Women if you live in Canada. Wikipedia calls it a soap opera set in the fictional women's prison of Wentworth Detention Centre, which was located in the fictitious Melbourne suburb of Wentworth. The series was created by Reg Watson and produced by the Reg Grundy organisation. There were 692 episodes which were broadcast between the 27th of February 1979 and the 11th of December 1986. Agrandi was making a number of other shows in that period. Young Doctors was still around, uh, and that ended 
That ended about 82. Sons and Daughters started in 82 and finished in 87. So, And of course Neighbours started in about 85. So a lot of these shows overlapped and were all made by the same TV company. Originally, Prison was only supposed to be a 16-part standalone series, which explains why some of the original cast are written out within the first six months or so, because as the show was being broadcast and was getting more popular and they decided to keep it running, some of the actors who had signed on originally for the 16-part series didn't want to feel committed to a much more longer-running series. And whilst many of the original cast stayed on, there were a handful who also sort of left quite quickly. Well, it's about time, bird brain. Where's the dirty linen? We can't wash thin air, you know. I'm a bit late because I had other things to do. You've got something else to do too, Mackenzie. Come with me. Where are we going? Hey, listen, if it's going to see the governor, I want to know what it's all about. It's not the governor, Mackenzie. It's Smith. Smith? Hey, now, hold on. What do I want to go and visit a loony for? What does she want, anyhow? The best way to find that out is to ask her. Now, Prison was definitely the first sort of series in this women in prison template that I was interested in. But, of course, before this, there was the British show Within These Walls in the 70s. Uh, and, of course, since Prisoner, there have been series such as Bad Girls... Orange is the New Black, Wentworth, which in itself is a sort of reboot, remake of Prisoner. Yeah, you probably have to call it a, a remake because there are characters in it with the same names as the names of characters in the original Prisoner. So, yeah, it's not a continuation, it's definitely a, a, a remake. Um, I own Within These Walls, and I've watched a few episodes. Uh, I watched all of Bad Girls. That is a really fun show. Orange is the New Black is another show I really like. Bizarrely, Wentworth is is one where I wouldn't say I haven't clicked with it, but I think perhaps because it is it is sort of the new Who to classic Who. Perhaps I'm a little bit more wary of it. I will get round to watching more of it. I've I've got two or three of the seasons. There's also a new series called Clink, which is also set in a woman's prison, and that that's very recent. I don't know what it is, but I'm absolutely not interested at all in men in prison shows. Women in prison. It's somehow, I don't know, it's just more me. I think the type of stories you get when women are in prison is just more varied. But, um, I don't know. So what about favourite characters? Well, um, B. Smith, who is the top dog, uh, for the sort of first half of the series, she's a very strong character. The great Queen Bee. Getting ready to meet your maker, eh, Smith? That's enough, Mackenzie. You can see how ill she is. In fact, in those early days of the show, you've got Bee and Lizzie and Doreen, who are later joined by another character called Jude. There are plenty of characters who are sort of, if not in the show from beginning to end, they're in it for two, three, four years. I think maybe one of the problems towards the end of the show is that um, characters come and go far too quickly. And some of the really popular characters have long since gone, and then it's quite difficult to replace them without, without replacing them with sort of carbon copies you do find that some of the plot lines do get repeated i mean these shows weren't made with dvds in mind with fans sitting there going well they did that plot three years ago well you know these things are going to happen one of my favorites of course is lizzie birdsworth who is the sort of gossipy character the old old gossip there's a lot of comedy in prisoner alongside all the dramatics and um of course the only character who is there from beginning to end i mentioned some of the 
bad warders, but uh, senior officer Meg Jackson, later Meg Morris, is a character who is there in episode one and also still around by the last episode. She's one of the most sympathetic characters. Of course, you've got other characters like uh, Erica Davidson, who is the governor of the prison. There are two governors in the run of the show. Erica Davidson is governor for about about pretty much halfway through the series. Then we get a new governor, Anne Reynolds, for, as I say, from about halfway through. Although it would have been tempting to have uh, picked a particular episode, I think I should probably just think of some of the episodes that I was particularly keen on. Anything with a psychopath was always good. Or or, or maybe a cult. At one stage in the series, you had a halfway house, uh, which was a, a home for people who'd left the prison. That's, of course, one of the things about Prisoner, is that although there are lots of scenes in prison, there are also lots of scenes set outside of prisons whether it be seeing how the various different women end up in jail maybe seeing them coming out of jail or escaping from the prison and then trying to survive uh, occasionally i can think of occurrences where people were being transferred from one prison to another and maybe there was a car crash and, and characters escaped but as i say the halfway house was a good plot line for having sort of people turn up seeking shelter and sometimes they could be trusted, sometimes they brought their own storylines with them, or got involved in cults. One of the most heartbreaking plot lines involved a character who, at the stage of this plot line, had, had been an inmate and had been with the show quite a long time, but, but she got sick, she got cancer, and she was suffering a lot of pain, and she wasn't going to get any better. Uh, one, of the, one of the characters, Jude, who, although she started off her days in prison, she was also known for running the halfway house. She helped this character die, and I can still remember to this day how shocking it was when I first saw this, and I was perhaps only 15 or 16, and the character went blind, and it was really quite harrowing, and she was helped to the end of her life by Jude, who of course was then arrested and put back in jail for murder, when it wasn't murder at all, it was anything but. So there there are lots of sort of hard-hitting storylines in there, uh, among the craziness. Um, what else? There were a number of fires. Of course, there were lots of riots, but there were some really good fires um, with sort of end-of-season cliffhangers where had people died or not died, all manner of twists and turns, especially by the time the, the freak arrived. She was full of nasty little plans. One of the most memorable plots was from um, sort of later on in the series where there was the wife of a gangland boss who was being held in the prison. And rather than her escaping, some gunman came in to try and sort of free her and ended up with a hostage situation and some really sort of key characters being, um, well, not surviving to the end of the episode, let's say. I could probably think of hundreds of different episodes that I like for one reason or another, but the one that really stuck with me the most in that I have kind of (laughs) done this same thing in... Uh, both my Sutton Park series that Lisa and Andrew were involved in, but also in some of my writing and even in my podcast was a plot involving a sinister doctor who hypnotised inmates to kill people. Of course, they would do it, but not remember they'd done it. Um, And the idea of somebody being hypnotised to become a murderer, it still excites me to this day. And it certainly excited me a lot back in the early 90s when I first saw those episodes so much so that as I say I I did my own plot line in my own show involving just the same uh, sort of scenario I suppose I'd better finish now cut it out Lou if you're gonna do it do it 
I could really talk about Prisoner for hours and hours and hours, but we haven't got time. It is very difficult to talk about a series that ran for so many years, but I hope I can share with you my enthusiasm for the show and tell you a bit about sort of my history with the programme and how I came to love it. And it's it's just such a fun show. And I, I think the only reason I am wary to call it a soap opera is that I know that there are a lot of snobs out there who, <laughs> you know, if the word soap comes up, that's a negative thing. And, um, of course, to me, that's never been a negative thing. Um, a lot of people I know don't like shows that have that many episodes. To me, gosh, a show with 696 episodes, that's going to keep me busy for oh, at least a weekend. Um, I don't know. Is Bad Girls a soap opera? Is Orange is the New Black a soap opera? I don't think you'd call those shows soap operas. you call them drama programmes. And Prisoner is a drama programme. Sure, there are characters who get romantically involved but you get characters who are romantically involved in episodes of the sweeney for goodness sake in pretty much any program there are people who are going to fall in love and have relationships but you don't call them soap operas so i think that prisoner is just a drama show and a very good one at that so um andrew and lisa that's that's all i'm going to say for now if you'd like me to pick a particular episode and review that um I know that Mr. Goodman will happily sit down with me and review an episode with me because that's one of the things I forgot to mention. When he recorded um, Prisoner for me back in the late 90s, um, he and Ali, his wife, although they weren't married at the time, but he and Ali, they got addicted to Prisoner as well. And they started off recording it for me and ended up avidly watching it themselves. So, uh, yes, it's very easy once you start to watch a few episodes to find yourself totally hooked on it. And uh, there are plenty of episodes on YouTube if you want to try out some. Watch some of the best bits, clips or something. Yes. Shh. Should still be available to buy as well, if you want to do it that way. But uh, um, So yes, Prisoner Cell Block H. One of my absolute favourites. Check it out if you haven't. Well, I think that's it for me now. I better get out of here or they'll have me in solitary. Goodbye now. Bye-bye. Many thanks to Paul for doing that. Yes, yes. I, I know he likes that. He does like it a lot. Yes, I think I might have recorded some for him for him for that. But uh. yes. Now uh, Warren joins us, and although yeah. we've done a video and a written tribute yes. to Paul Darrow, yeah. we just wanted to talk about him. We did a bit as well. So we did. here's here's us chatting about Paul Darrow. So Paul Darrow. Yes, yes. the wonderful Paul Darrow. Yes. What what's what do you think of when you? When I say Paul Darrow, <laughs> I think of him. We we went to a convention once, and he was. We were in the in the room, and he was being interviewed with David Maloney, mm. I think. And somebody came in late. Yeah. And he sort of stopped and said, "What time do you call this? How dare you come in late to my <laughs> panel?" And he was only joking, but it was yeah, it was very funny. But Warren, you wrote us a lovely piece, and you Thank said you, you identified you. a lot with 
Or was it Paul Darrow or was it Avon? It was Avon, but it was the way Paul played it. And this was the thing. He was having such a good time being really sarcastic to people. And as you know, my wit is rather dry, positively parched. Mm -hmm. And I can be a bit sarcastic sometimes. And that all comes from Avon's character. Yeah. Um, Seven, when Blake Seven was first transmitted. And you're picking up your character traits as you grow up. And that, that was the greatest thing. He's having a lot of fun being really cheeky and rude to people. Yes. I, I, I'm not, I don't mean it in a rude way when I'm, I'm, I'm a bit, um, how shall we say? Sharp. Sarcastic. <laughs> yeah, sharp. A little bit sharp. sharp. My wits can be a little bit sharp sometimes. And it's not meant in a malicious way, it, it, as Avon's was. But I could see where he was going with the character. And I found that quite fun. And it had such a impact on me. Because that's how my, um, one of my traits perhaps as my character has developed has always remained there and that's that's thanks to Paul Darrow <laughs> but Lisa you yes. recently uh, we put his uh, autobiography on in the yes. car when we yes. were yes yes I, I bought his is the um, audiobook version of his autobiography which he reads himself uh, f- um, from Big Finish and we listened to it yeah and it's it's great he's you know he was a great storyteller well, what are some of his stories? Because I don't think everybody will know um, sort of, oh gosh, it, it, when he was sort of growing up. Cause it, wasn't he in the cadets? Yes, he was. He went to um, Haberdasher's Ask private school, but he got a scholarship because he was quite bright. And then he was in the army cadets. And in sort of when he was about 15 or 16, they did some sort of exercise and they weren't expected to win because they had other ones that were considered to be officer material. But basically, they sneaked up on them and <laughs> sort of tied them up. Warmington on sea style. Yeah. But the teacher said they cheated and wouldn't let them have the win. Oh, that's just sour But, grapes. you know, that's, that's, that's the way armies... <laughs> armies don't announce their presence. Um, Hello, we're here. And there's a lovely story as well. Issue unit, of course. Issue unit, yes. And there you have the theme. Um, he was in um, a stage version of Alfie. Oh right! And he was on stage, and he noticed that there was a, a, a little old lady in the first or second row, and she was sort of—I don't know—she was nodding along. But it got to that, that he, he ended up stopping the play and talking to her for about five minutes. Oh, bless his heart. Um, and she she told him that she'd um, just recently lost her husband, and that her friends had brought her there to cheer her up. And then she realised that she was holding the play up. Um, and he, she said, oh, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I'm terribly sorry, I'm spoiling everybody's night. And she said, no, on the contrary, I think you've just made it. And he, she got a round of applause and then they carried on. Oh. So he was a very nice man, you know, he did, always had time for people. Did, did he tell the story in his rich tone? Yes. It's, his voice is it's, amazing, It's isn't wonderful it? to listen to it. I, it's highly recommended because yeah. I've got the... Um, Big Finish Player app on my phone, so if you buy a CD, you get a download. Okay. So you can listen to it on the go. His voice and sounds so yes, rich and diverse. You can, you know, cause sitting, sitting on the bus listening to Paul Darrow telling me stuff that I didn't necessarily know. So, but yeah, it's, it's he lived a great life yes. and he lived every moment of, it, moment of it to the full. Yeah. Which is all we can do, I exactly, think. Exactly, because so, we only get one shot at it. Yes. yes. And I noticed as well, because we're watching Blake Seven. And in every episode, he'll do some a little thing that makes you smile. A little bit of darrowing. A little bit of darrowing, yeah. It's the way you sort of... There's one where he runs around a corner. It's the way he sort of skids around the corner. It's, it's just, you know. And also he's playing the negative anti-hero. Yes. So you, 
it's very difficult part to play it is and be yeah. engaged with your audience and he becomes bigger than blake mm -hmm. um i don't know whether that was an impact that had on perhaps um gareth deciding to step down mm -hmm. because he becomes even bigger once blake goes yes yeah. um even to the point of the last episode isn't he he is the yeah. focus he's the last man standing yeah, yeah he is the last man standing well, can I ask you about that, Warren? Because you said you remember watching, you know, early Blake 7. How did the loss of Blake... How, how did that affect you as a, as a, a viewer? You know, Avon being sort of pushed to the, to the fore. Did you think it was a logical progression of the series? Did it, did, did it feel right? Did it feel wrong? I actually was... This is no disrespect to Gareth, because I think he's an admirable actor... I really preferred Paul and I always saw Paul as the lead mm. because he had a more powerful I don't know whether it was Terry Nation's writing writing of an egocentric character such as Avon against a mild-mannered person fighting against a system that's uh, trodden him down and wronged him i.e. The, 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 the Blake character being almost eclipsed by this egomaniac of Avon, who's not wishing to back down, who will question everything that's um, put to the group and say, is this what you really want from their leader? Uh, and I, I, I thought it was a natural progression that Avon would just take over. And then he does, doesn't he? That last season, he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He's almost to the point where you know he's coming to a fall. And it is that last man standing. But the lights go down we fade to black we hear about we hear the shots now we don't know it's very um it's left very open-ended how it will end uh, and you've got the big finish carry-ons from there mm. but it was in and you can see the egocentric coming up the ultimate i'm indestructible surrounded by all these it's almost the mavic chen moment isn't it <laughs> being exterminated by the darks you can't destroy me yeah. so yeah the the, the bit where he takes over and, and, and Blake comes out the series. Um, I saw it as, as a natural progression. But um, I think it's true that we never really saw Paul Darrow himself, did we? No. We, we always saw no. him playing... We saw a, Paul Darrow the actor. Yeah. A, a character even at a, a convention yeah. appearance yeah. or something you like that. You didn't see Paul Berkeley. No. but Which is his real name, yes, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. But... Just every now and then, there's a bit of footage where you do get a glimpse of it. I think because yeah. we said about we did his Who Done It, yes, didn't we? Yes. Um, <laughs> where he, he is doing the sort of question and answer thing at the end, and and it, it, it's not the Paul Darrow you no. expect to see. I no. think that's true. And even in the sort of the, the, there's some outtakes of him doing sort of continuity for mm. UK Gold or, yeah. or whatever. Um, where you can actually see him sort of talking to the director, and yeah. and suddenly that's not that's not Avon, that's that's yeah. Paul Darrow. You're saying mm -hmm. very quiet. And we were just saying this, weren't we? Yes. You, 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 actors are very quiet yeah. people. They have no character to character role to go into. And we were discussing uh, um, the fact that oh, well, I, I pitched in that they they have so many characters they've played throughout their career, how they can lose themselves. Yeah. And, and lose being themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think when we see people on the street or say we're in a restaurant or in a queue, as the case where I was with Peter Davison in Tesco's, mm -hmm. 
he had an argument with a self-scan checkout <laughs> you see the person then and that is not the convention person and that is not the actor character they are actually playing and that's that's quite interesting and but as you say from those outtakes paul is very quiet he's very measured but he also likes to have a little fun yeah Hmm. And it's subtle fun, isn't it? But yeah. he's, he's concerned to do it right as well. I yes. think that's what came over to me. Yeah. That, Are you happy with what I've done? Yeah. You know, do you want me to do it again? Because yeah. I will. You know, yeah. Till yeah. we, you know, I'll do it till we get it right to your satisfaction. Yeah. It's not a thing of you know, I've done it. That's what you're getting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Even for just a small thing like that, he wants yeah. to get it right. Yeah. You know, I, I'll do it two, three, four, five yeah. times. Yeah until everybody's happy. Yeah. I should just point out the Big Finish ones are slotted in the seasons. Are they? They're not on afterwards. Well, I, I showed my Cause, I cause, thought there was one at the end, sorry. No, no, because oh, they've right. got Gareth Thomas in some of them and some of them are oh, set right. before he leaves and then some of them are set after he leaves. And they are now thinking about what they're going to do with the range, whether they're going to carry on with it or not. Because okay. they've got some stuff recorded with Paul. But do you know what I want to watch again? His adventure game. Yes, if we ever find that it. That will yes. that will be an interesting one to go yeah. back to now because yeah. he's he's got a beard on him there, he has. isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Like, yes, he like him with a beard. Didn't he have a? Do you? Yeah. You like something to grab old. Oh one. yes. You were saying. Wonderful. I was saying. I was going to say. I think we'd probably see a bit of real Paul Darrow in I there as would. well, don't yeah. you? Because because yeah. he's he's faced with solving. Puzzles. The, these puzzles and mm. things like that, and there's no time for no. any sort of persona or no. anything like we, that. Didn't we sit and watch that one? We did. We did. He was th- very th- quiet, but I he think, was logical, wasn't he? I it? think that's the ne- next thing I'd like to see mm-hmm. sort yeah. of Paul in if we can find it again. Yes. But, you know, but it's here in the house. It's in the house, like most things are. In yeah. the house. In the house, yes. But yeah, I mean, yes. lovely memories of Paul Darrow. Yes. Yeah. I'm just sad we never really saw him enough. Yes. Not, not in real life. No. That's the thing. I'm very no. really sad. I've never met him at all. Never met no. him at all. But it's, you can, ch- another one, you can chart with your growing up, can't yeah. you? But mm. Yeah. But yeah, um. Warren, you, as you said, you, you wrote us a lovely piece. I have yes. a look on yeah. our blog spot and yes. we, we did do a little tribute video based around Who Done yeah. It. Yeah. And of course, yeah. we're still going through Blake 7. Yes. And enjoying it tremendously. As we speak. Yes. We're on season two now. Yes. So. yes. There's lots more talking about Paul Darrow to come from Yes, us. there is. So lots more to watch. Good. There you go. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to Warren for joining us on the sofa on one of the hottest days of the year. And he'll be back later. He will. But now, although Paul did his piece on his own... He did. Uh, Nick's not on his own. He's not. As he's joined by his writing partner of long-standing, mm-hmm. Joe Bunsell, yes. as they look at... Johnny Jarvis. And it's hello to Round the Archives. This is Nick Goodman here again reporting in. And I'm joined this this week, this week, um, this time round with a new voice to your folks, but an old voice to, to, that I've, I've known for many a year. We've been friends for nearly 40 years now this year, and we've we've written to, a couple of series together and loads of stuff, and uh, and we're still, well, we've just finished two books uh, with the Magnus Editor in Life After. I'd Hello. like to introduce you to Joe Bunsell. <laughs> Hello. Hello. This is me talking. Yes. And uh, this time we're going to talk about two series we know and like very much. Um, one of which is Johnny Jarvis, uh, which is was out on DVD last year. That's the wife, by the way, Ali. Hello, Ali. Hello, this yeah. is the wife. 
all the odd and job, the, the job centers sign oh. looked like that when I was looking for a job yeah. two years later. Well, no, yeah, two yeah, years two later, years. yeah, because uh, I left in '85. Oh, and the boards, you had, yeah, those boards oh. with the with the, the um, yeah, the, the labour exchange. The labour exchange. Been... My mum, my dad always used to talk about signing on at the lake. Uh, no, always crap. Yes, but my my, I always found with those job things because I was what seventeen, just just yeah. coming on eighteen. I'd just come out of YTS, and um, they. They either wanted total school leavers, which I was too old for, mm. or over 18s, which I was just too mm. young for. Hey. And you've also got, you've not only got uh, racism tackling, you've got bullying as well, mm. you know. Racial bullying. And um, so Jamie Foreman. Jamie Foreman, who, uh, rent-a-bully. Mm. <laughs> he, 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 uh, he was Good basically an, oh yes, he was in King of the Castle mm. um, as the, the warrior and the bully. Really understand why. Also, um, I, I suspect he's also um, gotten well with Gary Shell. Yes, they're very much the same age, same era, and probably the they, same background. And I think they support the same team. Ah. Uh, isn't Gary Shell a Spurs supporter? I think so. Because he certainly was when he's in Metal Mickey. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and I know Jamie Foreman's a Spurs supporter. Yeah. As I am myself. Yeah. As my as Jamie Foreman went on to do Doctor Who in the Tenant years. Yes, he did, yeah. Yes, in um, Idiot's Lantern. Yeah, that's right, yeah. and he's probably a paralytic of Spurs making it to the Champions League final, which I yeah. mentioned. Oh, Ian Jory, fantastic stuff. That is the basic soundtrack for this era. Yeah. There are many people who talk about other things being... Oh, Ian oh, Jory, no, Ian Jory was 78, 79 era Ian Jury. Yeah. Um... Now, some old guitar know down the pub, Eric, um, Eric Hart, actually does remember, because he used to work in London as a graphic artist in the uh, this period. Yeah. Um, pretty comfortable source, but he's now back here. But um, he remembers it's the Eagle Pub in Camden that he used to go and watch Ian Jory at lunchtimes. Oh, wow. And he says, brilliant, because he's popping there for a few beers, and he and Jory, they used to invite people out of the crowd, they had an instrument, oh, come on in, oh, now it's him. Yeah. Here we go. Come on in, have a sing song. Yeah. Yes, it was amazing. You've got the three of them there. This, this is Johnny Jarvis and the Lipton, played by Ian Shears, who was in the K9 Company, um, and the lovely Joanna Hargreaves, who plays the punk. I was at college with the punk, so I, 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 she, there was a sort of connection there. Although the, uh, she did spawn the immortal line if Nick had a Mohican, I'd probably fancy him. I was tempted. <laughs> Tanked up with polo back. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a good portrayal. As, as mm. you say, it was only sort of five years away. I just had to dial back five years. And Yeah, that's why I like this. It, it really does play very well. Of the, it's a limited history it goes through, but it's, uh, it's, it smells and tastes of 78. I missed uh, moving to Harnham and the garish wallpaper that was still there when you remember. You yes, met. indeed. We yeah. only met, as I say. Uh, and and this, the clocks on the wall that have those fancy surrounds. Yeah, and the episode we're watching is specific. 1978 to 79 and of course Joe and I met in 79 mm. so we, we this is very much the 70s we remember uh, Johnny Jarvis is played by the late Mark Farmer who sadly died a couple of years yeah. ago only only in his 50s it's a real pity that you know, the people from this didn't go on to sort of stellar careers they were yeah. absolutely marvellous actors I mean obviously John Barton 
Oh yeah, he, well, he went into the mum, uh, Johnny. Uh, no, Lipton's mum. No, well, the, the character of Lipton. I can't remember her name, but she she went. She was somebody's mum in Emmerdale. She, mm. she went on to be a renter mum. It's the thing that I always kind of most admired of this is it's based that Morris Colburn turns up and is basically doing a supporting role. Yeah. When he was actually quite a big name at this he time. He was, yes. He, he, he Return of the Saints. Yeah. Long before Lytton, Return of the yeah. Saints, he was the main baddie. He was guest Yeah, car, guest yeah he was a, he's a big name. And it just goes to prove what a good bloke he is. Yeah. Yeah, there's that true that there's no such thing as small parts and these small actors. Yes. I mean... It, he obviously recognised this is a good yeah. part. I'm going to yeah, do this. absolutely. And that's what it's all about. And it's good because he's a proper present when he turns up. Yes. And you don't forget him all the way through the series. Right. He's still there as a threat, even though he's actually not in that many scenes. And at this point he was doing... He'd done Gangsters. He gangsters, uh, yes, and indeed. pretty yes. well, that was the only series he got. And, and of course, in the last four years of his life, he did Howard's Way, Howard's which way, was yeah. a series that... Um, Put Bursledon on the map. Yes, it was never, Not quite, that ever needed to be. never quite as edgy as, as Maurice Cornwall actually deserved. Um, I think it, it would have been... Johnny Jarvis, basically, uh, it's the, the story of two lads who become friends. One's a, a nerdy bookie one, and the other is... A, Lipton's Nicky. Yeah, Johnny Jarvis is the cool one. And, and Johnny Jarvis is the cool one. And the two, they make friends. They basically share a girlfriend in the course yeah, of... Yeah, yeah. Um, but... Uh, but that's the point, is that Johnny Jarvis is the, the cool one at school, but he ultimately goes down the, the more pedestrian route, the, the conservative route, yeah. the working-class bloke goes and does a job in a factory. Yes. But that's that's destined to die under factorist policy. Um, absolutely. The deindustrialised policy. Yeah. Deindustrialisation. Uh, whereas Lipton becomes part of more the uh, what you might call the new media. Indeed, he becomes a, a, a um, writer. A, 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 a yeah, he's a creative. Creative writer, um, and the one with the working uh, uh, class angst. Lucky bastard gets on telly with his stuff. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, bizarrely, he never has a job, proper job, but he becomes the, the voice of working class angst. Yeah, exactly. Whereas Johnny Jarvis is the expression of working class angst because he's yes. the, the poor bucker who does everything right but doesn't get a break. Oh, I love those little cafes. Yeah. Yeah. They used to be a lovely one in Southampton, a bit yeah. like that, that's survived into the 90s. Yeah. They used to be around this Greek couple, cup of tea, <laughs> boiled egg, lovely. No, no, no uh, podcast involving myself uh, would be complete without the odd hormonal um, <laughs> observation. And I have uh, here a, a, a very much a partner in crime with that. All four uh, decades of uh, our friendship, as well as creating immense science fiction scenarios we've also had a long, lifelong appreciation of the opposite sex and mm. we have Joanna Hargreaves here with a very colourful hair and, and she really is genuinely good looking girl yeah as indeed a lot of punks yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, oh, that's a proper pub from the yeah, 70s, the 70s early 80s. Pub, yes, we had crap a 70s wallpaper. pub. wallpaper. With crap wallpaper. I had crap wallpaper. The house we moved into was... Uh, Golden Cam- shit brown Cam- wallpaper. Yes. Oh, <laughs> that's a proper bar. Mm. And mix, uh, very much uh, mix, uh, it shows a genuine mixed race London yeah, as well. Yeah, well, yeah, yes. You can't escape that. I just remember South London, which I used to visit a lot. It's an uncle living there. Yeah, it was. That, that's what I love. It is actually spot on. Mm. It's, it's that wonderful, weird mixing pot because anything goes. Mm. You used to have rest of friends wandering down the street and stuff. Well, so down the Elephant Castle. And Morris Cobbon's character is very cleverly ambiguous. Yes. 
he's into some racket, but we don't know what it is. Yeah. Do you think I'm sexy by Rod Stewart? <laughs> I mean, that is the end of 78, <laughs> yeah. for sure. That's for me. Oh, that's a proper front of a boozer, though, mm. there. That's, yeah. You don't get those anymore. Mm. Well, you do, but they're very rare. I love the fact that the bunk character, actually, she's not, not too angry or anything. She just likes to hang out with these mm. guys and, and gets involved and runs around and has capers with them. I well, mean, like yeah, well, that was a bit a 70s, 80s. Mm. You had capers. But she doesn't give them attitude or anything. She's no. just a nice girl that chooses yeah. to be a punk. Well, life used to be a bit like this sometimes. <laughs> Morris Cobon just a... Just months before he was litten. Mm. That's always a good luck check shirt and a, mm. a trench coat. I love the fact he's got really bad glasses as well. Mm. It's a wonderful memory in that time. No one did good glasses. Mm. Just love that gravelly mm. voice of Morris Colburn. Yes. There's only two blokes who do gravelly and that sort of stuff. It's him and Morris Rose. Right. Oh, he's... He Case always, he's another superb actor. I was watching it the other day, so Bank good. Holiday Monday, yeah. in fact, they had the Eagle has landed. I said, yeah. oh, it's more as well. Oh, I love the Eagle has landed. We, we, we watched that on New Year's Eve. That is, yeah. He also, uh, parental tension between um, Ian Sears' character, who's supposed to be, as you say, a nice boy. He turns from nice boy. He's almost trying to prove something because yeah. um, he's being bullied at school. Well, he's angry about something. Yeah. He's not quite sure what. Yeah. I didn't know my dad. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> And he's given this wonderful fantasy world of Morris Colburn as a dad. Yeah. It's, it's, it's something that I like about the, that whole point is that he has that fantasy world of an old man. Yeah. And he, yeah, Morris Colburn's character has had this sort of exciting life in a way, but it's it's a bit tawdry, yeah. as it turns out. It's, yeah. He's not really a nice character. He has the exciting life. It's, yes. They just see the excitement part. They don't yeah. See the, well, that's what being young is all about. Yeah. You, you see all sorts of different jobs that they do, and a lot of it's mechanical. Some some employers are sympathetic, and others are complete arseholes. Well, you know, what I like about the workshop is this is what hybrid sort of under the surface we're trained to do. Exactly. Um, Metal we, work. Yes. Uh, we also I did um, college day release which mm. is very similar to this. And I would have started it when Johnny Jarvis went out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the bit halfway, half half a day at the college, uh, doing th- well, things just like this, and metal yeah. work, plumbing. Well, I remember Mr. Carpentry. Barnes is the metalwork teacher. Yeah. A wonderful man. But, he, <laughs> but he'd always teach you to do things to British standard. Yes. <laughs> the British industrial standard. Yeah. That's what you've got to do, lads. Lads, lads this lads. is it. This Good man, because it yeah. was, he was one of those that, that generation teacher had an ex-army. Yeah. And uh, according to Mr. Herworth, he could um, uh, swear and chat up women in 15 different languages. <laughs> but I'm not sure if you believe anything Mr. Herworth yeah. had to say. Uh, also, uh, you notice that the mum in the the, the the black family is got very 1950s attire. Well... Yeah, I was about to mention this because this is a, a shift you have in, in, in sort of even black culture in London, which I think is not always addressed. Is you have those two different generations. You have the ones that came over in Windrush from the West Indies. Windrush is a simple thing, but that generation came over. They were always very smartly dressed yes. and they'd have this wonderful sing song accent. They always have a, a waistcoat on, a, a trilby hat. Mm. People say, oh, it's a cliche. No, 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 they exist. They play dominoes, but they chess mm. here and there. And then that. you get the children come on, they're slightly, completely different culture. They, they, um, the Windrush generation, people who came over in the 50s, 60s, they had a, a distinct culture and they mm. kept to it. They, it was, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah. The, the, the generation after them, they encountered a lot of nasty racism and yeah. um, they had a bit of an attitude. 
Mm. And I don't blame him. But mm. then you get it like his uncle's a bit of a dodgy builder. Right. And his uncle, of course, who played by Jim Finley, who's basically almost break dancing there. He's such yeah. an eccentric character. Yeah. And yet um, he was uh, dead serious as Mercer in yes. Resurrection of yeah. the Daleks, also with Morris Corbett. Is that Kevin Lloyd? Yeah, it is. Kevin Lloyd is a copper. They're, they're oh, pre the bill. Pre pre bill. So loads of familiar faces and good to go. And do, do we know with the writer? Um, what else has he done? I don't know. I mean, I've got the novelisation of Johnny Jarvis. Oh, I thought yeah. ages ago when it wasn't on DVD to remind myself what happened yeah. with it. Plus the usual perfunctory novelisation. Yeah. And the series is so much better because it, you you get this. This is almost. It's five years out, but they've yeah. recreated the past quite well. Oh, good. I mean, a rusty old transit. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you've got yeah. the culture on two different levels, very much the black and the white level. Oh, know, yeah. Right. And it, the, what I love is that it's place fair on the black thing. It's not patronising. It's a matter of fact. The acceptance, which perhaps... In, in even the 80s and 90s becomes slightly patronising you have to have a black character in there and they, they yeah. have to say that. And this, 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 it's quite well done yeah. I'd love to know how the writer approached this because I mean, they're, they're not necessarily sympathetic and particularly his uncle because he's a bloody dodgy builder but he's a lovely character now this the other thing the, 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 the army circular shirt he's wearing oh, that, yes. is a, that, is, that is very 70s, 80s because they got rid of all of that sort of stuff and it went over that camouflage so these these were massively on the market they, the MOD at this point got rid of a load of old army shirts and they were all like that yeah. so anyone who wanted to be a, a you know the, the street corner Marxist would go and buy a bit of army surplus <laughs> Gonna wear that. My main problem when they did um, Dare the Daleks, the enhanced version, is oh, yeah. that they quite correctly the uniforms, the unit people there are. Um, um, yeah, that's what they wore in the seventies. But sadly, you're wearing the camouflage stuff, and sadly, in, in most of Doctor Who, they didn't. They wore the olive green, and it just jars slightly. Yeah. But that's that's my problem with the special edition of uh, Dare the Daleks. I like it in all love respects, but you got the uniforms wrong, son. Details, details. But yeah, this, this is actually what the, this is old wartime battle dress from the fifties. This all he needs is a beret with a yes. sheriff's badge on it. <laughs> che Guevara. <laughs> that is what is. Uh, no, 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 fair enough. That is what the seventies and early eighties was a bit like. I mean. Yeah. We will laugh at Citizen Smith now. Yes, it is not a bad reflection. There's also, you see them trying to, without those who, you've got a, a sort of Lipton who doesn't have a plan and then yeah. comes up on top with the, the writing. Yeah, it's more by luck than chance. And so you have history, it goes his yeah. way. And you have Joanna Hargreaves' character who who isn't quite sure which one. Well, she's off the moment. That's the point, is that yeah. Lipton is basically, he doesn't realise that he is the future, he's yeah. the creative. <laughs> oh, hello. And she's at the moment, and Johnny Jarvis is... What a moment. Oh, hey. Johnny Jarvis is the past. He's, he's, he's doing everything yeah. right. Yeah. Poor bastard. So this is it. This is what you always wanted as a kid, wasn't it? To be a sex symbol, bad natural health glasses, greasy hair and some army yeah, surface. I mean, well, you yeah, might have done in London. No, not and, in Salisbury. And, and got me writing on the telly, yeah. Yeah, your mistake was living in Salisbury. He, he's, he, he's an obnoxious little twat, but... He is, yeah. Um, I kind of would have liked to have been... <laughs> well, that's the point. As I, he's, yeah. When I watched the original, I thought, he's the main character, he's the hero. 
I like him. It's called John Jobs. Oh yeah, that's the subversive thing. Lipton's the hero. Yeah. When you rewatch it, he is such a twat. <laughs> and you do feel sorry for Jarvis because he does yeah. everything right, but history yeah. is not on his side. But when you first He's see... emasculated by Thatcher. Yeah. When you first A little bit of politics. Yeah. <laughs> When you first see the two, you think it's going to go very much the other way. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, well, it's the title of the series. Well, that's the point. It's the title of the series, Johnny Jarvis. It's about him, but yeah, Paul Barsett chose the wrong side. <laughs> this is fascist Britain, son. <laughs> Yeah, I never yeah. got that laugh when I did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's tragic. Your body gets more advanced than you're doing. Yeah, tricks you into stupid ideas. <laughs> so that's the thing I do like is the use of cars. These are all the proper cars of the period. Yeah, yeah. it's probably well, I mean, you can still get them in '83, but it's just. And you've got Nick Stringer who. Was a very oh. well known character actor. He was in The Professionals, he was in Press Gang. Yeah, oh, just, um, just that street scene. Morris Minor, <laughs> Estate, a, a camper van. Oh, yeah. And it's not, it's a well, British Leyland camper van. a camper van. Brown Safer. Mm. I still have a Brown Safer. So 70s. <laughs> the little uh, coal, the little, little adjustments there, a little like, bit of wood yeah. on the side. Yeah. Classy. <laughs> And um, the hanging down bits there, I'm not sure what they call those, but... Um, mm-hmm. So you do... Oh, they're your runners. Yeah. The runners, they yeah. get your greasy hair on the back of the seat of the safe. <laughs> Very imp- That's the wonderful thing. It's the way his mother's wearing that really garish top. Yeah. And we all remember our mother's wearing... Oh, goodness What is very yes. conservative look, and then this amazingly floral garish shirt, yeah. sitting my, there doing your knitting. My mum had to horn-rimmed <laughs> Mary Whitehouse glasses. Yeah. And presumably there's some garish shirt, yeah, yeah, garish blouse, yeah. brown sofa, mm-hmm. and sat there doing the knitting. Hello, dear. <laughs> yes. And they're, they're always knitting something in a terrible colour. Yeah. In this case, that's actually not too bad a black, but it's always an yeah. orange. Yeah. Brown orange, yes. I'll yes. You. Unfortunately, yes. My um, my mother got wind that I liked Aaron's sweaters, <laughs> and my favourite colour was orange. No. Unfortunately, she tragically combined the two. <laughs> <laughs> With ghastly results. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, despite his kind of Jack the Lad yeah. um, thing, he's actually... Johnny Jarvis is, is actually quite a mum's boy, really, isn't he's he? Mum's I mean, he's a mum's boy, very conservative. Yes. Um, he, 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 in the way that, actually, in some ways, Lipton's a mummy's boy, but reacts against it. Yeah, he's got nothing but a mummy. Yes. The old rover police cars. And you've got the, the sort of... Trouble is, I'm no ex-skinheads, and they're so conservative these days. Yeah. Somebody... This is something like Yeah. Does somebody... Someone gets thrown through the window or something. Yeah. Or am I thinking of the boys from the black stuff? Again, that... It, Gives it, a job. Yeah, I mean, this came Gives out of the... The whole space of more working class... Yeah. Post-thatchery... Um, you know, this well, this was a kind of. It's not even post factory. It's, it's, it's inter- in factory. In factory. Yeah. Uh, this is sort the, of. This it, is basically saying this is what factorism's like, son. Yeah, uh, I mean, it sold you short. This and a little bit of politics. Uh, previous year was the boys from the black stuff, which of course had been started pre. Yeah. Uh, Thatcher. It's the woolly hat, check shirt, and that um, mm-hmm. reefer jacket. Lovely look. Yeah. <laughs> I, Bloody Sherpa van is an ambulance. Oh, that is a hospital corridor from that period. Yeah, the infirmary. It's, it's, yes, it's, we, we're looking at a hospital uh, yeah. now. That um, yeah, very yeah. much like the infirmary at, at Salisbury. This horrible green painted. Which, walls. frankly, I would have liked to have had a crack at working wise. 
Um, I, 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 no, it's a lovely old building. Oh, it's a lovely old building, but in the 80s, I mean, they used to have the whole windows open with sash cramps. <laughs> it, was, they were, it was literally falling apart. Yeah. My gran was dying in their cancer. Mm-hmm. And they'd actually have these props holding yeah. the window, mm-hmm. the, the lintels together. It was awful. And then, mm-hmm. yeah, that was your health care. Yeah. I thought you I thought another way, yeah, dressing gown and pyjamas. This is almost like carry on doctor. But yeah, that's how people used to dress in the hospital. Yes. And Lytton with a catheter. If he had survived, I would have loved to have seen what Morris Colborne would have done in the 90s and even noughties, you know, as, yeah. he, as he, an older Morris Colborne, you know, mm. in sort of more sinister parts. Yeah, I mean, I've also wondered if the whole John Jarvis series, it would have been interesting to have done a 90s sort of. Um, Taken where the characters had gone the nineties. What, yeah, that, what would Johnny Jarvis' future have been? And indeed, would Lipton have been like lording it up on Cool Britannia? Oh, and still pretending to be the angry young man, but yeah, actually well, sort of well in with the trying crowd. To Jarvis Cocker and things like that. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's an interesting take. We're also, I mean, you and I have had multiple experiences of working with characters mm. in What If. Yeah, let's see what they're like down the line. Yeah, you know, we, we've explored that so many times ourselves. It's actually interesting to. Well, the, the the main thing I keep thinking of Johnny Jarvis is how much was this influenced by the original stage presentation of Our Friends in the North. Oh right, which went from spot what sixty four through to seventy nine, yeah. the original stage presentation, and how much that actually influenced the idea of doing something among, uh, across a few years. Yeah. But then actually the TV version of Our Friends in the North actually then extends out to about the, the contemporary point of 94. Yeah. So you actually then do see what happens to these characters. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, what would happen if you extended these characters into the 90s or even to the early 2000s? I mean, And you, you actually did have a, literally a telecast there because um, Joanna Hargreaves plays Stella. Well, that's the interesting uh, thing. I think it's, it's, it's something that comes up in Our Friends in the North and I think it would be interesting to these characters. What would happen to Stella Hargreaves' character into the 90s as women become slightly more important? Yeah. That actually, because Johnny Jarvis is a man who's lost his way, does his wife then go on to become the breadwinner? Absolutely. And I have to say here, we, we've watched an episode, and I've forgotten that um, a certain person isn't in it, uh, that is Gary Shale. Oh, who, yes! Uh, He's magnificent. Uh, uh, I've got to say it, it's superb. He's um, TV viewers will remember him not only well, not only for Quadrophenia, but also uh, in a Stevie in Metal Mickey, and um, Boogie Boogie, a Boogie Boogie Stevie baby, um, and we, we, I met I and Joe's great aunt yeah. met him two years ago when he opened the St Martin's Church Fate, and he's I can say he's a lovely guy, you know, he's he's very down to earth, and he was. Not too cool for school uh, to open a church fete and with lots of old ladies, including Chris Biggins's mum was there as well with with your aunt. I think she was she was talking to your aunt. Um, My aunt would talk to anyone. Yeah, she was a lovely. And frequently did. But um, no, it was good. It was a lovely, lovely occasion, and and it was great to meet Gary, who actually does the soundtrack for this. Yeah. And here's a little because I'm on Facebook with Gary Shale. And he, I actually, I don't know if it's widely known, but there were fake Johnny Jarvis DVDs mm. going out um, before this came out. Uh, it was on Amazon with a very authentic looking cover. But um, somebody was saying, no, no, don't go for those. They're just fan 
copies and this came up with a different cover on Amazon and I messaged him and I said you know is it it's come up again with another cover is this on the level it we you know it, it, is this the real thing this time and he said uh all oh, right I don't know and he went off and and said uh yeah apparently it is kosher I'm this talk to my agent oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and of course he did the soundtrack and of course he played uh, he's in it yes yeah, uh, playing one of the characters yeah I mean he's um, superb he is he's I mean yeah I don't understand why he's not a bigger actor he's good he's <laughs> Brilliant. Um, he's still all very much into his stuff, and he produced a a mod Christmas song a few couple of years ago, which is really really good. Um, no, well, no, but it's the way he played his friendship with listeners at the right level of antagonism, but true friendship under yeah. the surface. It's, it's, it's a very nuanced performance, yeah. which is it's the best thing you can say for an actor. Yeah, he's nuanced. Yes, it's I mean be- it's, it's a beautiful thing to watch. You've got. Dodgy characters who aren't particularly unpleasant. Yeah, and he's um, actually one of the few characters who turns out you think he's going to be nasty, and he's, he's all right. Yeah, he's a nice bloke. He's a bit punky. He's a bit, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah, he turns out to be he's one of the good guys. Quite sensitive, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful performance. Yeah. I'll, I'll, so I said to you when I, I, I rewatched it, well, Gary Shell he knocks it out of the park. It's, it's yeah. a superb performance. Yeah, but everyone's um, quite natural. I mean, oh, I mean, the whole cast are good. Gary Shell particularly though. There's just something about his performance. It just gets it. I have a feeling Mark Farmer was ex. Grange Hill. Yeah, they, they, they did the whole thing of a lot of the mm. cast were ex Grange Hill because that's the vibe they wanted to go with. Yes, coming out at, um, the, almost post Grange Hill. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and it's that idea. It's, it's Grange Hill gone bad. Yes, because <laughs> Grange Hill meets reality. Yeah. It's funny, Ian Sears disappeared after this. I mean, mm. there was um, K Nine and Company, as we've mentioned mm. before, mm. and uh, this. I mean, he's yeah, a K Nine and Company in... also has, of course. Um, the bloke who goes on to be Uncle Frank and Hellraiser. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but um, and Inspector Lestrade. Yes, he. Uh, I mean, he, he's given an enormous part in this, and mm. yet he, you don't hear about him after this, do you? I mean, the only problem with Johnny Jarvis is the fact that it was just laid forgotten for so long in the archives. Yeah. And it, it, it is. Is it because it's so? It's very left wing. Well, it's left wing. It's very political. Well, you can't escape this sort of thing yeah. in the eighties. You're being creative in the eighties. Yeah, and well, we, the we, were, a, we were working together in the when yeah. this went out. Yeah, but the, the problem is there's a lot of lazy eighties leftism. But, but this is actually a very thoughtful, thought provoking, and yeah, it's truly good work. It's mm. uh, I, I I I can't sound the praise of the, the series enough. It's 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 superb, and, and the fact it smells of the period. Also, I think some uh, people like ourselves who I mean, well, we lived it. We we lived it. We were yeah. friends for, for yeah. a large portion of the show. But um, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, for 70, well, for you, seventy-seven. Seventy-seven is, that, that, is when I started year. the Magnet Editor. Yes, I mean, start the Magnet Editor, the, the uh, Jubilee, the Jubilee, and I had a lot of series cooking mm. at that time. Uh, not as well documented mm. as the Magnet Editor, but um, yeah, I got my first side of colour TV. I got drunk for the first time. <laughs> I was only eight at the time, but. Um, but no, I mean, uh, and the episodes are actually, they couple these years together, like with 77, 78, 78, 79, and so on and so on, until you get to 83, which is when it was made. Yeah. Um, and and it, it ends with the election. Yes, exactly. And you've also got this whole kind of thing. It's like, uh, it's done like a school year. Yeah, yeah. So in actual yeah. fact, which makes Johnny Jarvis about, a year younger than my sister because she she actually left in early 77 she was so her last year would have been 76 77 
Well, um, not actually freeze. It did have you left thinking about what your future was actually yeah. going to be. And, Absolutely. Um, and probably one of the first generations we actually had amusings on how must, crap it might actually be. Yeah, and it must have uh, struck a chord with me because I in I was in my penultimate year mm. when mm. when it went out, and I everybody was thinking of the future when they left in '85, and and I was it, quite hard nuts were coming up to me and said, "What do you, you know? What do you think about leaving school?" I said, "Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm up for it." And a lot of people were actually scared. Just use the hard ones who thought, yeah, oh, exactly, yeah. Out. Oh, I could go a lot, work. Of, a lot of them were really scared about uh, Well, going. yes, I used to get that vibe off people because, of course, I mean, the whole nature of um, industry was changing. Yeah. I mean, that's the point of the series, is that those small um, shops you, you, you've got for industry that Johnny Jarvis goes into, they were the, the dying out at this period. Mm. And so a lot of the jobs that were being trained for, some of the hybrid, were actually disappearing, which oh, yes. probably actually sort of Got an idea of oh maybe I should do A levels yeah uh, maybe I should go to university and le- and learn I yeah. wasn't one of those people I I, 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 uh, I, I had quite enough of academia uh, 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 well I had two brothers <laughs> had already gone for it and I thought oh, yeah maybe I should think about this rather than, yeah. because all this industrial stuff they're treating me is, is all well and good but there isn't a future in it mm-hmm. and uh, thanks to a series like this I was watching it, mm-hmm. I kind of realised that yeah, there's not a future in it. No. I mean I don't regret it now because I can do most of my home repairs and um, oh, yeah. I can do a bit of basic carpentry yeah. I, I love hybrid for that but I mean mm. there's no future in most of what they're teaching oh, at that no, point it was, no. it, it, was, it, was, it, was it was very old fashioned mm. teaching that we, 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 we had and of course this is what is portrayed in the show yeah um, well this is his point yeah, yeah it, it's, it's, very, it's very much uh, it's very much a school era that we we recognised no, no, I think it's probably this that led me to get a university yes I've, I've even met people in the pub who've basically bowed down to me and said oh you went to Highbury we went to Highbury yeah, I went yeah, to university I, <laughs> hey. yeah well, I, I get that it was almost yeah. like a badge of honour I mean, yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> calm down guys yes, <laughs> yes Johnny, Johnny Jarvis is a very very effective uh, classic the, the thing is it's a very much a trip down memory lane but the fact is that when you saw it originally it spoke because that's what you remembered yeah. and, and it still runs today as well it, as, uh, great. It's, it smells and looks like the period it's in, the 70s to early 80s, all the way through this, that's how we remember it. Yeah. We live through this, and it, it because it, it represents it as being a bit crap, mm. and that's exactly what it was like. Mm. It, it's slightly disappointing. It's not... What you might see in films and whatever is that, that highlight, that wonderful thing that was out there. This is actually what it was like. Mm. It was um, something good was going on somewhere else. Mm. And um, we got the crap wallpaper and the uh, the bad paintings of the wall, uh, but we still remember them fondly. Yes, exactly. strangely, <laughs> even though you'd never have them on the wall now. No, no, no not not. But not it's a bit of nostalgia, not without a sense of irony. No, no, no. Um, it, it brings back those memories when you see it, and it's yeah, uh, that that it's that is. You can actually feel yourself right back in the period, Absolutely. and it's not many times because if you see something that tries now to mm. replicate that, it feels. What it is, a replication. And, mm-hmm. and um, the only thing I saw that tried to recreate the 70s was that he, um, the BBC adaptation of Little Drummer Girl, which tried a, right. a slightly stylized version of the 70s, but didn't cheat on it. It, it, it. it didn't make it look really good. It made it look slightly crappy. It slightly stylized. It went for a very 70s colour scheme. Mm. So it's slightly stylized, but it, it, it kind of made the 70s look a bit washed out. And I thought mm. that's the. F- 
one of the few times I've seen it look done by modern eyes correctly was just done by more contemporary eyes. Mm. And it's, 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 if you want to know what it was like, Johnny Jarvis is your series. Mm. That, that is spot on. Yeah. It is spot on. Nick and Joe will return next issue. They will. Uh, mm. And that's just about it in terms of links. It is. So we'll say thank you for listening because yes. we're going to go into the end credits after, after the yeah. after the next article. Mm-hmm. So Warren, as we said, joins us yeah. all snuggled up on the sofa yes. as we look at... Yes, Minister, party games. Bye-bye. Bye. Tomorrow, BBC Two pays a special visit to the Ministry of Administrative Affairs for Yes Minister, starring Paul Eddington and Nigel Hawthorne. (laughs) Minister, I have some very grave news. The relationship which I might tentatively venture to aver has been not without some degree of reciprocal utility and perhaps even occasional gratification. (laughs) is approaching a point of irreversible bifurcation and, to be brief, is in the propinquity of its ultimate regrettable termination. <laughs> a special hour-long edition of Yes Minister tomorrow at 8.30 on BBC Two. I see. <laughs>
It's more the end theme tune because I always get it mixed up with To the Manor Born. It's, it's very similar. similar it is quite it? similar, yeah. Very similar. Yeah. But we start off um, Jim Hacker's at the DAA and Bernard presents him with the Department of Administrative Affairs. Affairs. Thank mm. you. And Bernard, his secretary, his pri- private secretary, yes. um, he's not the secretary because he doesn't do the typing, no. presents him with piles. Of, of cards. Christmas cards yes. to sign. And they've all got to be signed in slightly different ways, haven't the, they? These you sign Jim. These you sign Jim Hacker. These you sign, you sign Annie it's... and Jim Hacker. These you sign at Love from Annie and Jim. And mm. so on. Now, um, a Vicky sticker. I said this is 1984. And um, sort of Nick and Joe in their um, article about Johnny Jarvis talk about sort of leaving school and, and jobs and things like that. And it's around this time that I would have been thinking, what sort of job could I do? And I didn't really have much of an idea. But when I watch shows, I used to think, which one would I be in this situation? And I was always Bernard in my head. Mm. That, you know, he, he was. The, I could see myself doing Bernard's job. No, I'm. Because basically, yeah. Bernard didn't seem to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> he just stood there and agreed and sort of gerrymandered about anything and had, had an opinion, but was always shot down by. Um, Sir Humphrey. Yes. Yeah. 1984 was the year I met you. Ah, right. There you go. There's a throwaway line here at this point um, where they refer to Jim as the party chairman. Yes. And to me, that's extremely unlikely because I don't know how he'd end up in that situation. Yeah, usually party chairmans have been in far more senior positions. But it does become important later on in the episode so we shall see but party chairman is usually a, a point where that, that their career is not going to go any further but they've been a loyal um, a loyal supporter to the prime minister usually so they are sort of um, manoeuvred shall we say into that convenient position but but Jim's sort of been talking to Maurice from Brussels Maurice who we do get to see Sounds later like some cheap porn star <laughs> <laughs> well who is Maurice because we get to meet him later oh don't he's we? from Moonbase he's from the Moonbase Andre yeah. Moran with his cravat with his cravat <laughs> yes yeah. those shady ladies mm. from Argentina and of yeah. course also known at this point for the Pink Panther movies yes as he's the sergeant isn't he he is the sergeant yeah but um yeah, this is all about the Euro sausage mm. and, ha- and how the EEC is going to make... Outlaw the British outlaw, banger. Outlaw the British banger. Mm-hmm. Now, rename it. Ah, rename it, not outlaw it. Yes. It was, yeah. it was, um, that, was a, that was a red herring for yeah. the sausage pun. Yeah, <laughs> because the, the British sausage only contains 26% meat, of which yeah. is mostly gristle. <laughs> so... We, they, they, under ah. EEC regulations, you can't call it the Euro the Euro sausage. Did you have a tasty or a banger? sausage? Or a sausage? Yeah. Did you have a tasty? I did. Today? I did actually have sausages for lunch today, but I'd like just like to say that they were seventy percent meat. Uh, what, how would you describe your sausage? Uh, sort of short and fat. Satisfying? Yeah, satisfying. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. But yes, it would have to be renamed the emulsified high fat offal tube. But yes, lovely. Uh, yeah. And. Uh, there's an example of one of um, sort of Bernard's sort of bits of pedantry when Jim says about we'll have to grit our teeth and bite I the do. bullet, <laughs> and uh, he goes into his logic. Doesn't Bernard he? points out that if you grit your teeth, you, you can't, can't bite, bite a, a bullet. bullet. But yeah, there's there's some talk about um, the presents that Jim's got to give out to the to the DAA, which is sherry and mints, basically, mm. which are spot on accurate. Yeah, are yeah. they? Yes, they are. Yes. Um, 
my mum was the housekeeper for Lord and Lady Cranbourne. Lord Cranbourne was a Tory MP at the time right. for West Dorset. And each year, depending upon what you contributed to the party, you either got a bottle of sherry or a packet. A packet. <laughs> strong with, a box of House <laughs> of Commons mints. And we used to get boxes of uh, House of Commons mints. Because you do see them later at the party because yeah. they're holding them under those. Yeah, and they're genuine boxes as yeah. well. Yeah. Uh, Bernard wants a surprise and the customary su- surprise is a bottle, bottle of champagne, champagne yeah. but um so humphrey's been called off to a meeting with the cabinet secretary sir arnold i imagine it's uh, somebody in a, a room full of wood 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 full of wood. Wood, wood. <laughs> making cabinets in a corner yeah <laughs> but sir arnold's thinking about retiring early and his, his first concern is to what jobs can you know, oh, his successor away, yeah. slip his way. Mm. Um, it's almost like he's got a Christmas list of jobs I would <laughs> yes. like to do. Because there's... Um, Divide that, bribery and corruption. Yeah, the, yes. the Chancellorship of Oxford. And uh, wasn't it, is it the, there was uh, no the one... Anglo-Caribbean thing in the winter months? <laughs> there was no sort of, uh, let's go low and work our way up. Let's just reach the top and stay at the ceiling. But Sir Arnold's thinking about joining the Campaign for Freedom for Information, which surprises Sir Humphrey. But mm. he says that if he's head of it, then the freedom won't be abused. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's quite apt, really. That's isn't a it? wonderful yes. cynical line. And there's lots of cynical moments in this one. Basically, Sir Humphrey is being lined up for, for the job as Cabinet world, Secretary, isn't, it? isn't yeah. he? And sort of Sir Arnold says, I gave various advice to the PM that I'd like hushed up about, like, arming troops when they're sort of on strike um, dealing with strikes and things like that it was wonderful the way in which we as the outsiders are watching this wonderful almost dance as they move around each other to maneuver and outdo each other yeah. in descriptive terms and then but the, the the plain and simple thing is they are both working together to con everyone yeah well what i like what i love about this show is not only is the sort of plotting very much like a chess game, whereas yeah. one person will move one piece uh, to, as you say, to manoeuvre against somebody else, but also the way language is used, yes. where they will make it clear what they want without ever actually saying the thing and committing to anything. And, there's, and everything they ask does not have a yes-no answer. Yeah, that's right. But later on, Sir Humphrey tells Jim in a rather roundabout way mm. that he's they're not going to be seeing each other soon. Well, he's <laughs> not going to be with him anymore. Yeah. <laughs> he's not he, long for this world. Yeah, because then he says, but we see, will we still, we'll still be seeing each other. And Jim gets a little bit worried at well, that, well, doesn't he? Well, Jim starts to sort of sob into his hanky because <laughs> yeah. he thinks Sir Humphrey's yeah. going to die. Yeah. Then when he's told he's going to see he's him again... I almost imagine he thinks like Sir Humphrey's going to come back as a ghost <laughs> and haunt him. What fight him? That's a completely different series altogether. Yeah, so there, there's, yeah. the, there's the spin-off series. Yeah. yeah, but I like the thing that Humpy. <laughs> <laughs> Once they work out what they're talking about, sort of Sir Humphrey. Sir Humphrey is slightly concerned that Jim's going to pieces, mm. and, and, but Jim doesn't want Sir Humphrey's sympathy. You mm. know, because that would be sort of showing a. Showing a weakness. Yes, which you don't do to the cabinet secretary. No. And, and when he realises that the cabinet secretary sort of advises on appointments, mm. he's right in there then, like a rat up a drain pipe. Then Jim <laughs> is immediately crawling to Sir Humphrey oh. about you know how brilliant he's been, and I I like Sir Humphrey's thing about I couldn't have asked for a better minister minister, <laughs> <laughs> which basically it, it was almost vomit ridden, wasn't well, it? Well, it basically it's means that um, Jim 
has not been too much trouble. Yes, he's mm. he's, he's been under control. He's kept within what he should be kept within his remit quite healthily. Because there, there's a phrase the civil service has about ministers being house trained. Yes, and mm. that that's what you get here. Later at the Christmas drinks party, <laughs> which is one of those wonderful sort of awkward awkward oh, yes. gatherings of people who yeah. never have to talk to each other where like sorry yes, carry on. No, no. Like, where the top man he doesn't really know any of their names no. you know, I was, and, that and was he's exactly just going around going having a good time would you like another drink would yeah. you like a top up I was thinking exactly the same yeah. he has no idea who the people are that work with him he takes everything they do for granted yeah. I mean Jimmy's already three sheets to the wind isn't he <laughs> If not four, and I love the bit where he starts playing with the hair of of, 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 of I don't know <laughs> who she is, but, or some but, random person. Yeah. But he's trying to be friendly, and that's the first thing that comes into his head. Yeah. And his wife is stone cold so- sober, super, just looking so- disapproving, very yeah. much so. Yes, I like like the line about uh, we're a team, mm. you know, unlike the cabinet. Um, then he how, remembers how Humphrey's going to be cabinet secretary yeah, yeah. And, and tries to say the, the, the shadow cabinet of yes. course he refers to Humphrey as Humpy at one Humphrey. point and so Humphrey sort of gives a little speech and sort of emphasises the don't drink and drive campaign that's <laughs> on at the moment so next Jim's driving home at all of what 10 miles an hour mm. to avoid the curb from jumping out and hitting him <laughs> i'm driving perfectly stably as he says and of course the jam sandwich the appears. jam sandwich turns its lights on and uh, what is it you said lisa the audience go oh Ooh, yeah they get, they get alarmed oh yes yeah. but yeah um now there's a reference made to a silver badge now, what is a silver badge? Uh, is there such a thing? The the silver badge wouldn't have entitled him to get away f- for being um, under the influence whilst drinking. Drinking whilst driving. <laughs> uh, he can park in sort of restricted areas and say the police have closed the road off and he wants to get down there. And he shows this and they have... It's almost a parma- parliamentary privilege. Is it? But for ministers only. Is there a gold badge? If there's a silver badge. Yes. There is a gold there badge. There is a gold badge, but it's not held by members of the Parliament. It's held by members of the Crown. Ah. They can do anything they want. They can. So the Queen, <laughs> so the queen can do ten-ups. Yeah. I could, I, I could um, remind people that Princess Anne got points on her licence. Oh, and, yes. For, yeah, yeah. for her driving. Yeah. yeah. But you're not really going to stop the Queen if the Queen's doing it. Well, if I have <laughs> my figures for the month, <laughs> Lizzie's coming in. Pull her over. <laughs> Blow into the bag, ma'am. I'll hold your rings. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So his wife takes over the driving as Jim collapses, basically in the gutter. Yes. I think, but at this point, because I know you said that, that it wouldn't entitle him to that. But they just, I think they just sort of think, oh, is it really worth it because of who he is and what he's got? Well, they you, just let if go. If you read the novelisation, um, which it does have a few extra bits and pieces in it. Um, there's a reference to like the the um, what was it the sec- security guard? He gave his security guard the slip, and then the police turned a blind eye, which shows they weren't very experienced or something like that. So lack of lack mm. of training or something. So it, it is sort of papered over a bit in, yeah. in the book. Later is that on. for him or for somebody else? Sir? No, that was for um, the, the other the Home Secretary. The Home yeah. Secretary. yeah, yeah. Who we're going to get onto now? Yeah. Mm. 
But yeah, the security guard asleep. You can see him like sneaking out some bog window. But <laughs> <laughs> the shady lady from Argentina. So Jim and Sir Humphrey have a meeting, and basically Humphrey has to tell Jim off without telling him off. Basically. Yeah. Uh, but of course, the Home Secretary's had a similar incident, mm. where his car collided with a, a lorry carrying nuclear waste, which overturned, and then rebounded into the car of the editor of a local newspaper. <laughs> so inevitably, it leaked out. <laughs> this is nuclear, nuclear waste. waste yeah. <laughs> so yeah, mm. basically picked up pissed in his own constituency, isn't he? Mm. <laughs> but yes, so. And I, I just love the line about what's going to happen with the Home Secretary. He was as drunk as a lord, well, so they so give him a seat in the lord. So, that, so they're probably making one, yes. Which is probably very apt and very true. But all through this sort of episode, it's very much if you're in a certain position of power, you are to some extent protected from. You will never real go life. down. You yeah. will always go up. Yeah. So if you drop that clangor, they will put you quietly away in a nice little seat somewhere. Yes. yes. Just, just be quiet and don't cause any more trouble. Exactly. Yeah. Be grateful for what we're giving you. It's but very much that actually. At home with Annie and Bernard now. Bernard's got to lick stamps. <laughs> and he, he doesn't he doesn't want to at first because he thinks it would be government lick, basically. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not That's a... so wrong. <laughs> That's what it says in the book. <laughs> Technically it would be government lick. But yes, a reshuffle is announced. By Moira Stewart on well, the telly. Not a reshuffle. It's announced that the Prime Minister is resigning. Well, yes. yes. Moira Stewart is on the telly, which Annie operates with a huge remote control. Oh, yes. That probably goes clonk. I'm, I'm looking at this recorder as we talk, which is at Actually least smaller, a, than, smaller the than the remote control. Well, at least it's not on a wire connecting it to the telly. Wow, I love those. But, yeah, the PM's going to retire in the new year. Because he was waiting for the uh, Home Secretary to burger off. Yeah. Jim comes in, they've had an emergency cabinet meeting. Rumours are that the PM was a secret CIA or KGB agent, or there might have been one million pounds of diamonds in a safe somewhere. <laughs> None of which turns out to be true. You can imagine a uh, Prime Minister top hat cape twirling his moustache going, Wahahaha, as he runs from number 10. But the great line, never believe anything until it's officially denied. Yes. yes. Which is very true, isn't it? So there's good... There's obviously got to be a new PM, so it's probably going to be down to Eric or Duncan. Can you imagine having a Prime Minister called Eric? Eric, yes. <laughs> so Eric is the yeah. Chancellor and yeah. Duncan's the Foreign Secretary. Yes. Do you think they went for the most unappetising name for Prime Minister? Possibly. And Meanwhile, on the other page... <laughs> Peter Jeffrey and Peter Jeffrey, um, yeah. Philip Stone. Well, I like the fact that, again, in the book, Peter Jeffrey plays Eric Jeffries, so they didn't think oh. too hard about his surname. <laughs> Jim is sort of called in by both of them to see who who he's going to support, mm. and he keeps saying he has to appear impartial. But they said it's all right. You can. You he can... bends in the wind, doesn't he? Oh, hello. Hello. Oh, uh, apparently uh, you're not working, Lisa. Oh, why is it telling you that? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Good girl. <laughs> Everything's going off. You can start hammering next door now. <laughs> but yeah, Jim has to appear impartial, but so long as everybody knows who he, he supports, supports, that's all right. So the problem is Jim um, has been bribed, hasn't he? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mercilessly. 
Yes, with the promise of whoever candidate, whichever candidate becomes prime minister, to have Home their job. Home Secretary or Foreign Secretary, or if he doesn't support them, he's going to Northern Ireland. Or Chancellor of the Exchequer. Chancellor of the Exchequer. That's mm-hmm. it. Yes. But Arnold and Sir Humphrey have a meeting, and you get, do get the comedy basic line: um, "How's things at the campaign for the freedom of information?" I'm sorry, I can't talk about that. And they're discussing who should be PM, basically which lunatic should run the asylum. <laughs> Um, Do you think that's how they feel now at yes, the moment? Definitely, yes, definitely. Yes. Yes. Oh, that's why this episode is it's so, so worth spot watching on, at the isn't moment. It? Yes. But the new PM, whoever he is out of the two... There's nobody interested in history. <laughs> the new PM would probably split the party. Yeah, one yeah. in three weeks, one in... Th- three months. Three months, yes. yeah. They're looking for a compromise candidate, somebody with no bright ideas who can be manipulated, uh, professionally guided. Definitely mm. Mr Hacker. And then the idea of Jim crosses their mind and so Humphrey <laughs> just bellows with laughter. <laughs> but it, maybe it's not impossible. Maybe it's not impossible. So and then Bernard turns Well, up, Arnold yeah. suggests, oh, first yes. of all, having a look at the, at the MI5 files for Eric and Duncan because mm-hmm. it would be good for a laugh. <laughs> and Bernard appears. They float the idea with him about Jim as the next PM and he just looks at his watch. <laughs> So what are you looking? Are you in a hurry, Bernard? I'm um, just checking to see it's not April the first. <laughs> so they're. Advi- I remember that line from the original yeah. broadcast. Their advice to Bernard is to ensure that Jim says says and does nothing basically <laughs> in the next few weeks, which is basically what his job entails usually anyway, isn't yeah. it? So Jim's concerned about EEC waste that. There's one official who pays farmers to make loads of surpluses and then another one who pays them to destroy it all again. Doesn't the futility of it worry you, Bernard? No, not really. I'm a civil servant. (laughs) But yeah, then they discuss which which job Jim would like if Eric or Duncan becomes PM. Does he want to be foreign secretary or chancellor? And the trouble with the chancellor, he's, he's Mr. Killjoy putting taxes on things. But... Foreign Secretary, well, the British public want you to be nasty to foreigners, Ooh. which really, <laughs> yes. ouch. Yes, ouch. Yeah. And anyway, Britain's got no real power, we're just an American missile base, <laughs> which for 1984 it's quite apt, is a good actually, line. Yeah. But Bernard plants the seed, doesn't mm. he? Yes, Bernard plants the seed. So, the Chief Whip wants a meeting uh, with... Bird's Whip. <laughs> Bird's Whip. <laughs> no, the Chief... The chief whip is called to a meeting with uh, Sir Humphrey and Jim. Mm. Basically, how can they get rid of Eric and Duncan? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, they're going to do that. They're going to do their legs, aren't they? Yeah, because of security question marks. Mm. So with Jim, <laughs> so with, sorry, you know what we're going to. Yes. So Jim's party chairman. Yes. So so he can see the files, yes. but the chief, but the chief whip, whip, the chief whip can't. can't. Yeah. Much to his frustration. Mm. Uh, the chief whip just responds in like capital letters, Jim Hacker as PM, <laughs> but there must have been a, a, a less likely PM at some point, though they can't think of one. <laughs> but there's a security file on the Chancellor, an interview with his driver. Jim has a look at it. I love the way he puts on his glasses immediately yes. to read it. And his lies, uh, uh, lies his eyes illuminate so yeah, widely. And he he mutters under his breath, Dirty That's old. Oh. <laughs> yeah, get it. Yes. And apparently um, the Chancellor's been in, indulging in a lot of, as as Sir Humphrey puts horizontal it, jogging. horizontal jogging, yeah. as I believe. It's and, and there's various ladies. I hadn't heard that 
for years. <laughs> and there's various ladies from various countries involved, including mm -hmm. the shady lady from Argentina. Glumping in the roadies, my uh, teacher used to call it. Yeah, there, there, there is some people that think this is just a cover for his real requirements, mm -hmm. as, as they put it. Which is, ouch. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. um, so he's not PM material, apparently. So it's got to be Duncan. Yes, well, we were coming to that. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the financial report on all what Duncan's been up to. And the fraud office investigation. <laughs> non revenue. Yeah. All yeah. of which was technically legal, which is one of those <laughs> wonderful word, phrases. That... It is. So, yes, the parallels of today. Mm. 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 Nothing much has changed in. Nothing at all. In right. 35 years. That's the thing. It's a slow burner, wasn't it? But it comes around again. But yeah, the chief, the chief whip, is sort of fed up at not being able to see all this. Mm -hmm. So Jim basically has got to get them to stand down because nobody else can do it. Mm -hmm. The chief whip can't because he hasn't seen the files, and Sir Humphrey can't because he can't get involved in party matters because he's a civil servant. Yeah. So they also suggest that Jim stage manage some public success. <laughs> mm. Basically be seen to to be good at something. But in the meantime, let people know don't let people know you want the job. And this is the bit where Paul Eddington comes into his own, isn't it? His character yeah. comes into his own. He's not actually guided and he could have made a complete his character could have made an absolute hash of this, couldn't he? Yeah. But he, this is where he, um, Humphrey, I think, lets him go off, yeah. knowing it's it's safe. Humphrey puts the key in and winds him up. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, he's a master manipulator, and this is this is one of those very good episodes for showing that. I think. But yeah, sort of, but yeah. it's interesting that he can trust him not to make pills of it. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, the thing is that the prime minister has to have the killer instinct, <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, I like Jim. Jim Hacker does not have a killer instinct. <laughs> I don't see uh, many of our recent prime ministers have had a killer instinct. <laughs> so Jim has meetings with Duncan and Eric, lets them know that he knows what they've been up to. Marked their cards, as we say. Mm. Some wonderful eye acting from Paul Eddington when, mm. when he sort of uh, just just widens his eyes a little to appear threatening. You know? As if to say, I know exactly what you've been up to. So the, the other Dirty two, devil. yes. The other two, <laughs> dirty stand down. Thirty. Then there's a meeting with with uh, the European Commissioner, Maurice, mm -hmm. about the British sausage. And again, Humphrey runs the meeting, and yeah. Jim just has to agree with him. It's yeah. the, it's a puppet. It's the puppeteer working the puppet. It's yeah. classic, isn't it? So the way round it is just to change the name to the British sausage with capital letters. Mm -hmm. Although the commissioner denies that the. The two people involved in offices next door to each other, and not in the next door office. He's not even on the same floor. Yeah, uh, and uh, Jim's kissing at the end surprises him. I he think. does. He yes. looks a bit taken aback, doesn't he? In in come the correspondence from the papers, and Jim mm -hmm. plants the story about the British sausage being made illegal because mm -hmm. you've got to get bad news in the paper Did before you, you have the a success. Size of that video camera. <laughs> it was huge. That's a little bit later, but yeah. But yeah, uh, Bernard sort of disapproves that the, the the press will be printing something that isn't true. True. <laughs> How shocking. Now, we actually get some filming in the back of the car briefly. Mm. We do, yeah. With, with Jim and Bernard. And normally this is done with sort of CSO. 
But it's a nice little two shot. They're listening it? to the radio about where this is all going to go. Which wasn't switched on. Was it not? No, because the screen wasn't illuminated. <laughs> but they, you've actually got proper steam in the back, in the sort of back window. Do you think they put a load of people in there to to make it to hot, steam it up, steam it up, so you didn't get um, reflection from the car lights and people seeing they're actually filming in there? Well, I was trying to work out. You're going to have four people in there, aren't you? Because you've got a yeah. If somebody's but, actually driving it, you're going to have and a you've got a cameraman. But as you're well. going to have a tail car as well, so you and don't get some. Coldest. That's true. With his big, with his big fluffy thing out. Yeah. Just because it was driving along the road doesn't actually mean it was driving along the road. No. Oh, it could be on a trailer. That's yeah. true. But. The BBC and ITN cover mm. Jim's speech on fire and safety policy in government buildings. Mm. Though when we see the film, he doesn't seem to be talking about that. No, he's talking about something else, isn't he? He's doing a, a big sort of we're British and proud of it speech. Oh. Mm. And they keep cutting to the applauding crowd as he's sort of running down the EEC, isn't yes. he? Another uncomfortable moment of parallels of Complaining mm. about how we've lost the threatening bit and things like that. <laughs> And we're going to be forced to eat garlic-ridden, greasy foods. Mm. Ouch. And then we zoom out from the footage, because it, it's being watched by Ludovic Kennedy. Ludo, mm-hmm. darling. Going, did you see, <laughs> basically. Jim does refer to him as Sir Ludovic at one point, which he's not mm. in real life now, although he will become. But allegedly his knighthood was, was blocked by Margaret Thatcher, mm. apparently. But yeah, will Jim be the new PM? Well, he has no ambitions in that direction. <laughs> well, Ludo, he says as well. <laughs> it's like an MP saying, I'm resigning to spend more time with my family, yeah. mm-hmm. even though I've dedicated my entire life for public service. <laughs> but this is a time for healing. Oh, does that sound familiar? Yes. A little bit of politics. My name's Ben Elton. Right, back to Sir Humphrey. There's been a party meeting, or the party meeting is going on when they decide when they're going to do decide. You manage, do you think they actually have a party party? <laughs> a proper party. Mm. Jelly ice cream. Whether they're going to mm. put up another candidate, and then Jim sort of gets all confused over the telephones. You know, mm. which phone will he ring on? Well, that one, or that one, <laughs> either really. But the phone goes, and so Humphrey sort of yes, yes. It's just that wonderful build yes. up, isn't there? Mm. Yes. Bernard's got a message for you. <laughs> In comes Bernard wanting to know whether Jim will be free to kiss hands at five o'clock at the palace if he's unopposed. And then this is another sort of bit where the gears very slightly crunch. As to set up the new series, Jim asks whether Bernard would like to be his principal That's private right, so you secretary. you draw him in. Yeah. Because yeah. normally that wouldn't be his appointment to make. No, it wouldn't be. No, no. that's a senior civil servant's yeah. appointment to make. Yeah. Mm. But he would... Yeah. Because the look on um, Humphrey's face actually yeah. puts that across, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, but uh, so that, that's a bit of a stretch. But to keep the series going, yeah. you've got to have that line to cover it. Because mm-hmm. otherwise, Bernard would just be back with the with the whoever and, the new minister was. And he said, um, "Is that all right, Humphrey?" Or the prime minister's word, word is, is law. law. Yeah. And the phone rings, and Jim picks up the wrong one. Of course, comedy basic. And then, am I? Am I? Am I? Yes. Prime Minister. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And do you notice the way he slips his arm in his jacket? Oh, yes. Mm. Just, yes. Just, just for the pose at the end. Mm. You know, now, he's, now, he's, now he's come to power. Mm-hmm. But 
That is such a spot-on episode, isn't it? It is. Yeah. You see so many parallels when you're watching it, particularly mm. at this point in time. Yeah. And Margaret Thatcher did comment that the series was closer to the truth yeah. than any other series that's been there. And for a comedy series to be able to hit something that's close to home is, is quite apt. Well, they had very, very good sources. Yeah, I was going to say, they had an insider that gave them information. Yeah. But for... What was perhaps a very cynical show in 1984? It's astonishing how how it, well it stands up in mm-hmm. 2019. Now, yes. yes. Mm-hmm. So I think that is. It's worth a rewatch if you've not seen it, or, or worth a watch. And I mm-hmm. I don't think it's a case of audiences being well educated now to review it. I don't. We have a clearer point of view of how we see the world working. Perhaps certain things have been removed from our beliefs in the establishment in that time back mm. and then you look you go back to something like the Pufumo affair yeah and we look at it in a completely different light now yeah. so it's just a generational thing isn't it mm-hmm. well, there you go yes minister party games uh, mm-hmm. aptly named longer episode and i think it really makes use of those it extra does. 15 yes. minutes yes. yes yeah but yeah absolutely fantastic yes thank you for that mm. thank you bye 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 was episode 37 of Round the Archives. Starring Lisa Parker, Andrew Trowbridge, Martin Holmes, Warren Cummings, Paul Chandler, Nick Goodman and Joe Bunsell. On the musical side you heard Dan Tate and Paul Chandler. The script for Yes Minister Party Games was by Anthony Jay and Jonathan Lynn. And the producer was Peter Whitmore. But there is a, a throwaway line here, which does come to be more important later, um, with a... There's a cat knocking at the window. Okay. <laughs> okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, where were we? I'm going to have to cut that. Unless he's banging. I no, they couldn't be next door banging on your window, could they? <laughs> I, wouldn't have thought, was I don't think so. There's no, there's no shadow. So like our next tail, door neighbour's doing DIY, so if you hear noise, that's yes. what it is. Right, where were we? Um, but <laughs> totally forgot. Well, don't dry. Oh, hello. <laughs> Did you have those radishes again? <laughs>